This episode of The Forge Podcast is brought to you by the generous donations of Thea Fattel, Jason Holloway, and David Morris, along with all of our other amazing Patreon supporters. If you would like to become part of The Forge community, you can learn more at patreon.com forward slash Forge Genesis. Thank you. Welcome to the Forge. Hello, Gamer Nation, and welcome to The Forge, your Genesis RPG podcast covering everything that you need to know about the latest and greatest from Fantasy Flight Games, Genesis Foundry, and the Genesis role-playing game. I'm your host, GM Hooley, and we have an episode tonight that is going to crank up the NOS and shift into 10th gear and drift all about Tokyo and, yeah, yeah, I still know nothing about cars. You'd think I'd learn by now. But anyway... <laughs> But <laughs> I do know about vehicle chases and races in Genesis, which we'll be diving into in the furnace. Uh, also, we'll be returning to our Breaking the Mold segment with an exciting interview with RPG narco himself, Roy Altman, to talk about his recent released Genesis Expanded Critical Tables, which is absolutely amazing and uh, fantastically formatted. And of course, we'll be answering your games <laughs> and rules questions in Under the Hammer. For now, however, let me introduce you to my forever wingman, my co-pilot and navigator, the goose to my maverick, the Starbuck to my Apollo, it's GM Chris. Chris, how are you going? Okay, I'm I'm fine. I'm the Starbuck to your Apollo. I'm good with that. I'm goose? <laughs> I'm, go- I'm goose? <laughs> I'm, I'm like I'm the I'm the goose. You know what? You know what? I'm if anything, I'm Iceman. Okay. Right. 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 I'll, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with that. That's just <laughs> you know, you know, yeah, you know. But no matter how strongly our friendship and hosting relationship bonds, Huli, mm-hmm. I give you this solemn vow: mm. I will never, ever <laughs> do a half-naked volleyball montage scene with you. <laughs> no, that'd be like watching a lava lamp, wouldn't it? But <laughs> um, yeah, buddy. Woof. Or churning churning butter, something. Yeah, man. <laughs> also, that. that's that's a terrible image uh, and uh, I apologize to all of our listeners <laughs> for that <laughs> image that we've just drawn for them. <laughs> Goose. That's what you get for goose. Goose. Uh, uh, well, at least I get to be married to Meg Ryan. Well, young young Meg Ryan. That's yeah. true. That's true. That's, but, that's, that's, but, that's but, true. But you tend to like not like the uh, the canopy on a on a jet fighter very much. But um, no, no, no. Spoilers. Spoilers. Spoil- spoilers. It's a bit late. Yeah. <laughs> it's a. It's what twenty five years old, thirty years old. That movie. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> craziness, craziness. All right. 
Look, Chris, I think it's time we get things underway. But before we get into the show all proper like, uh, we do have to give you all, that's all you listeners, another reminder about the forthcoming Forge Awards. Deep voice included. Nominations are happening right now for the Forge podcast, honouring of the best of the best foundry products from the past 12 months. And there's a lot in there. Uh, nominees will be voted on by the podcast hosts and our amazing Patreons. But Chris, can you tell us a little bit more about this nomination process? Absolutely. I mean, so we've got public nomination awards in four categories. Best adventure, best setting, best general supplement, and best layout and design. If there is a product on the Foundry that was released between July 31st of 2019 and July 31st of 2020, you can nominate it. All you got to do is email us at forgegenesis at d20radio.com with the subject of Forge Award nomination. Mm. Tell us in your email why you want to nominate the product and for what category. And you can find more descriptions on what those categories mean at our website at forgegenesis.com. Also, we have decided to extend our nomination period due to some unfortunate technical issues on our last episode that delayed its release mm. past the planned original date which was at the beginning we're going to be at the close to the beginning of august yep. hence the delay of our original announcement of the forge award nomination opening mm. and as a result the 2020 forge awards nomination deadline has been extended to september 30 2020 uh, so now we know that there are obviously lots of time zones in the world and we do uh, have listeners in, I think, just about every time zone. Uh, but uh, So we're not too worried about uh, if it ends up you know, clicking over into October um, for, uh, for some of our, our listeners, like in Australia, for example. Um, obviously, the States is behind. So uh, as uh, once it um, clicks over to the, uh, the October, that's when... It will be the deadline. Uh, so make sure you get those in before September 30. Um, after that, voting will commence for each category among the hosts and our Patreons with only one major rule. And now this is just to reiterate, no one can vote for a product that they contributed to. And uh, that, in the interest of fairness, uh, the host of the Forge podcast, that's Chris and myself, uh, have recused ourselves for any products that we've been involved in. Um, we will announce the winners uh, by the end of October. Uh, hopefully, we'll have a show uh, that will be at the start of October, and that's when uh, the Forge Awards uh, episode will air. And uh, not only for those winners who uh, will get a shiny digital Forge Awards winner badge that they can slap on their product. Um, and you would have seen the preview of that uh, on our announcements on Facebook and all of our social medias. But uh, we'll also have some other little spiffy swag prepared as well. <laughs> mm. And again, for more details, guys, head to ForgeGenesis.com and get those nominations in. I'm so excited. It's going to be great. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> So, Maverick. <laughs> God. You're not going to let that go, are you? <laughs> I, I, I'm not. I'm not. Because I think I feel the need. The, the need, need for, for speed. speed. So, should we take <laughs> off uh, into this episode with some new Foundry products, maybe? Oh, absolutely. So, let's fly into the danger zone in Stoking the Fire. 
Stoking the Fire. And welcome to Stoking the Fire, a segment dedicated to letting you know all there is to know about the releases from the Genesis Foundry and the Genesis role-playing game. But first, Chris, would you like to tell us about the D20 Radio podcast of the week? Indeed. This week, I really wanted to highlight another excellent actual play podcast on the network, and that is The Story Told. Mm. Um, TST is a highly entertaining group that does these, basically these mini campaigns across varied systems. Mm. Um, so if you really want to strap in to, to discover some things you maybe you've not played before, it's a great listen. Um, and, and the group is just brilliant to listen to. Um, <laughs> great stories, great arcs. It's just good fun role-playing. And right now, the crew is actually in the midst of a wonderful journey they're taking in Exalted 3rd Edition mm. um, called The Fall of Giara. So go and check that out, and you can find this and more amazing gaming and geekery podcasts over at d20radio.com. I've never actually played Exalted before, but... I played first I played first edition back in, the, like, way back in the day. Right. Now, I've, I've been told plenty about it, uh, and a guy I used to work with uh, always uh, went on about his Exalted campaigns. Uh, but uh, never had the opportunity. But uh, so, but anyway, check out the story told. Um, it's a, it's a great podcast. And after you've perused the awesome podcasts and blog articles in d20radio.com, why not head over to the Genesis Foundry at Drive Through RPG, where you can find the latest and greatest Foundry releases for Genesis. And this week has seen some cool new releases, Chris. So, what's our first one? Yeah, so since our since our last episode, and as of the time of this recording, the first thing we got um, is is the first one. We've got a couple from this author uh, to talk about, but mm. Lee Ironside released Cybernetics and G Mods Body Modification Catalog for use with Android Shadow of the Beanstalk. And like Lee, Lee hit us up with his first product, which we mentioned last episode, uh, which was the Gun Locker, and then he followed up like fast with Cybernetics mm. and G Mods a Body Modification Catalog. Um, I personally haven't had the chance to crack this one open yet. Um, and it's, mm. it's blurb is unfortunately a little less descriptive than the gun locker, but the, the product appears to contain <laughs> stats and descriptions for numerous cybernetic and, and G modded implants, um, and their associated rules. And the title obviously expands upon the, the body modifications that are presented on page 104 of, of Android shadow, of the beanstalk and, and Lee presents it, um, on the foundry as a, as a tool, uh, for both players and game masters who are looking to obviously expand their choices of cybernetic and genetic modifications for both PCs and NPCs, so yeah, yeah. interesting. Um, it's it's got a it's got it's got a price point of four ninety nine, mm-hmm. um, which I think all of his releases have had to this point. Yep. Uh, but yeah, I'm interested to crack this one open and, and check it out. Yeah. Mm, yeah, absolutely. The uh, cybernetics is certainly the uh, the interest. Of uh, many a Shadow of the Beanstalk player, so uh, yeah, he certainly oh, yes. grabbed onto uh, to that for sure. Um, our next title, however, is Genesis Toolset, which was quite interesting when I saw this one pop up. Uh, the author is Masked Man Games, so it says, "Why does this supplement exist?" Well, after organising and arranging my own Genesis RPG space opera campaign, I developed the advantages and threats tables included in this supplement for a variety of areas, finding the need to expand on possible advantage and threat results during skill use, including combat. Rather than having to think swiftly and concisely on the spot, these were developed as tools to enhance gameplay to keep the atmosphere intact 
and the events flowing. Regular pauses to interpret the dice during creative mental blocks delayed the game and impacted the atmosphere. They were also instrumental in maintaining consistency between advantages, threats, triumphs or despairs during gameplay and proved so useful that I wanted to share them through the Genesis Foundry. They can supplement any existing advantage and threat tables or can be used in an alternative to the interpretation of the dice pools. Keep those players on their toes and keep it fresh. <laughs> I don't know whether I'd want to be using it. It sounds exciting, <laughs> but I just don't know whether that's something that I would find useful. But it may be useful for people who've never um, played Genesis um, or do struggle in that department to uh, to come up with ideas. Yeah, I mean, and, and I've, I've encountered that for a lot of a lot of uh, I think players more often than GMs uh, really often will occasionally struggle yeah. with that, especially as they're first learning the system, mm. you know, and before it gets on the tip of your tongue. So yeah. interesting. Absolutely. Very interesting. Mm. And uh, yeah, and it's uh, it's a $4 cost, so hmm. Now, next up, it of course wouldn't be a, an, an episode if we didn't talk about a release, at least one from the machine Chris Markham. <laughs> um with one I'm actually incredibly excited to get on the table. I I can't wait for this. <laughs> Goblin's Gambit. Um, mm. and the the, blur, the blurb is trouble brews on the roads near the small village of Mistwood, with merchant wagons increasingly falling victim to ruthless yet unknown raiders. While not an uncommon occurrence, it's the random methods of these attacks that confound local law officials, preventing them from predicting the whereabouts of the next strike. It's not until the player characters stumble upon the remnants of one such attack, finding clues to the identity of the attackers, that the mystery blows wide open. Who is responsible for these attacks? Why are they kidnapping travelers but sending no ransom demands? And what madness drives the random nature of these attacks? <laughs> <laughs> and considering the title, we could all see where this is going. Um, but yeah, Goblin's Gambit, man. It's a, it's a, it's a fantasy adventure for the realms of Terranoth mm-hmm. setting. Uh, obviously, or you know, any fantasy setting, honestly. Yep. Um, yep. Suitable for a party of four to six. Uh, with 50 to 100 earned XP. Yep. I love that call out and, and saying, hey, this isn't an introductory adventure. Mm. This is, you know, something that's there for people with a few sessions under their belt, yep. um, which I, I really like. And I also really like the price, Chris, at mm. three bucks, yep. which is fantastic for an adventure module. Absolutely. It's just a nice entry uh, level module. Um, four PCs with just a little bit of experience. So that's sort of around about that, um, you know, four to six sessions worth of gameplay so uh, if you're averaging that three hours so uh, yeah absolutely fantastic i've seen the module and it's it's yeah it's amazing go and get it it's really good uh our next title (laughs) our next title is boost number three Deep Dive uh, by the Community Project. Uh, Now, as I've had it explained to me before, this is basically uh, an amalgamation of a whole heap of different things submitted by different people uh, in the Discord community for Genesis, um, where they pile a whole heap of stuff together and just release it for free. Uh, so uh, it's uh, its blurb is the Book of Online Source Triumphs uh, is a Genesis community project with the goal of creating content that relates to a specific theme. 
Now, the theme for this issue is Deep Dive, one of my favorite environments this is going to be talking about. Uh, inside, you'll find 15 new pieces of equipment, including one vehicle which will aid you in underwater expeditions, five new adversaries appropriate for deep sea awesome. adventures. Yeah, absolutely. Five new adversaries appropriate for deep sea adventures, um, two articles with GM advice for running underwater encounters, a micro-adventure, Sunken Treasure, which can be adapted to fit any setting. And I believe that's also by Chris Markham, so uh, well done. And the price is for free. So uh, absolutely fantastic. Um, downloaded, I've taken a look at it as well, and it's really good this time. I love it. That's fantastic. Uh, I, I, don't think, I don't think underwater gets enough love. No, I agree. In my opinion. I agree. Absolutely wonderful. And speaking of Markham, again, um, again, it w- wouldn't be an episode without having, I should say, I guess, at least two titles that he's released. Um, right. <laughs> but uh, also, Terranoth Treasures Volume 4, uh, he recently released, mm-hmm. which the blurb is, More Magical Items. <laughs> the fourth volume of the supplement provides 20 additional Terranoth magic items. Each is derived from classic magical items in various other fantasy roleplay games. Like previous volume, this product describes each item along with uh, an illustration, uh, rules for using it in Genesis, and the information needed for characters to craft their own. Uh, very much similar to the other Terranoth treasures that he's he's released. Mm. Um, and obviously, as usual uh, with his Terranoth treasure supplements, all these items, these components, uh, the components to make them, can serve as really cool adventure seeds, mm. um, giving that GM some tools to, to motivate and, and challenge the players who look into craft. Yeah. Um, so very, very interesting. Um, price, $2.50. It's a bargain. Yeah, absolutely. It's great. Um, now, our last uh, product for this week is uh, another one by Lee Ironside, uh, who has obviously stormed onto the market with a few, uh, with a few supplements now. And um, they're pretty good. Um, I haven't really had a chance to look at them too deeply. Uh, but they're not too bad. So the next one is career specializations, which I was very surprised to see, um, which are talent trees for use with Android Shadow of the Beanstalk. Uh, Within these pages, you will find career specializations and talent trees for all of the 10 careers presented in Genesis Shadow of the Beanstalk sourcebook. A total of 30 career specializations in total. Each specialization contains its own talent tree, and career skills that allow players to create a variety of specialized characters with their game's master's approval. Uh, it is four ninety nine. I haven't been able to uh, get my hands on this one yet, uh, but phew, that's a lot of work to do 30 career specializations. God, yeah. Um, so I'll be keen to take a look at that. I'm, I'm interested to... I don't know. I'd, I'd love to know more about how it was play tested because that's yeah. a that's a lot. I mean, as we talked about before, when we had Sam on to talk about it, mm. the, the the amount of play testing for specializations is just insane. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. When you start talking thirty of them, um, you've got to really look at how they all combine. What did he do with uh, uh, with things like knack for it and stuff like that? Because it doesn't necessarily translate into a specialization. So, uh, yeah, it will be interesting yeah. to, to take a look at that. Well, some great products this week, and you guys can find all of them and so much more fantastic Genesis Foundry content over at drivethroughrpg.com simply by searching using the words Genesis Foundry. And perhaps, Huli, DriveThruRPG mm. is also a great place for listeners to take a look at all the cool products they can nominate mm. right now for a 4G award. 
Right you are, Chris. And since you've uh, raised the topic of the Forge Awards, remember, listeners, that only Patreons of the Forge podcast can vote on those nominations. So why not jump over and become a supporter? of The Forge by joining our Patreon for as little as $2 a month. You can also access our dedicated Discord server where you can interact with um, other fellow Genesmiths. Is that how we say it? Genesmiths? (laughs) While higher (laughs) tiers provide priority for your games and rules questions. Uh, Special in-show recognitions and even a special monthly get-together with either Chris or myself to discuss your Foundry product campaign, games, or anything else that you want. Counselling, we can even do that if you want. No, we can't. But it's nice to think that. (laughs) Um, What else, Chris, could we talk about? The weather, funny jokes, apps that you're really enjoying right now, fatherly advice given to you by old men. We can do it all. (laughs) We can't guarantee it's good advice. but I just uh, said advice. I didn't say it would be good advice. So, yes. Well, that's my disclaimer anyway. Um, all, the, all the advice I have to give <laughs> yes. uh, is like, is like it, it was all given to me by like my grandfather and father, which means it's wildly like it's it's aged horribly. It's like it's <laughs> it's, it's it's good advice. But the verbiage is like is, is misogynistic or 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 just very, very it's aged very poorly, <laughs> like 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 very, like very, very poorly. Right. Um, you know, like like uh, when, when I when I first went to the workplace, my my, mm. my father gave me a piece of advice, which is actually good advice. I just wish it was told to me in a much more appropriate way. <laughs> and it was a very it was a very simple statement. Right. He said rem- he said, "Remember, don't get your meat where you get your bread." <laughs> what does that even mean? <laughs> It's it's about inner office relationships. Ah, uh, right. Yes, yes, yes. Ah, you getting it together there? Okay. Yep, yep, and yep, it's yep. It's, re- it's really good advice. I just mm. wish it wasn't presented in such a horribly <laughs> misogynistic format. You know, but that's you know that's we all we all have emotional baggage, right? Mm, right. M- right. M- mine is pretty tame compared to other people, so I guess I'm fortunate. <laughs> we know that but, best uh, here in Australia as uh, don't screw with a crew. But uh, yeah, 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 that's 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 yeah, that's about that's about, that's about right. That's that's about right. And so you know, guys, if you want to join our Patreon, you can get some some highly suspect advice from us. Um, ideally, hopefully, about your games, which yeah. is what we really really want to do for, for, for our patrons. Yeah, there's been absolutely some amazing discussions over there recently uh, with regards to adversary creation um, and uh, a bit of a discussion about the rules that uh, that we answered in the last episode, uh, talking about uh, the called shot. Uh, so there's been some interesting discussions there. But uh, no matter what, anything you can spare to show your support is appreciated. And each of your donations help the podcast directly so we can continue providing you with excellent regular Genesis content. So join the Forge community by becoming a supporter at patreon.com forward slash Forge Genesis. Okay, Chris, we're out of the danger zone and ready, it seems, to hit max speed towards our dogfight of vehicle chases and races. No, I very much like the fighter plane analogy, but um, though I know as little about jets as I know about cars. 
<laughs> yeah, I'm in, I'm in the same boat. But yeah, man, I listen. I've been I've been really wanting to dive into this topic for a long time, mm. um, and it's been a very hotly requested one: chases and races. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got we got some rules to drop on you, and a lot of house rules to drop on you. Yeah. Um, yeah. But these are things that have been borrowed from already tested systems mm-hmm. and tested 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 and retested house rules and modifications that Huli and i have both um experienced just ridiculously heavily uh through nearly a decade of narrative dice play now mm, so I'm, I'm i'm really excited to drop into this let's race headlong into the furnace the furnace And welcome to The Furnace, the segment where we take a deep dive into a topic concerning custom creations using the Genesis role-playing game. Now, over the past few months, during several of our episodes, we've sent ourselves off to the mechanic for a fuel-injected overhaul by exploring the vehicle rules using the narrative dice system. Now, in episode 15, starting your engines number one, the first of engine, we took a long look at vehicles. First, we laid out the the skills used to operate and steer vehicles in our diecasting segment, and then followed that up with a look at vehicle statistics by explaining what they all mean and how to use vehicles mechanically to get them from point A to point B. Now, that gave us enough information to explore vehicle combat in episode 17, starting your engines number two, cruise control, where we discuss the options that GMs and players can use to mount spectacular vehicle combat scenes. We also explained how you can use the Genesis vehicle rules in your Star Wars game, and then we took a long look at the rules for encounter zones and how they can make your vehicle and personal scale combat easier to visualize in your games. And it was one long episode, Huli. <laughs> it was. But uh, not to be outdone, on that same episode, we ran a short combat scenario to show you how it all comes together. And uh, it was a lot of fun. Oof. Yes, it was. And then finally, in episode 20, uh, starting your engines number three, ramming speed, uh, where we explain the rules for collisions and critical hits and how their use in combat can make it all that more precarious yet exhilarating um, in vehicle combat. And all that means that we've given you all about six hours of vehicle rules content at this point. Yep, pretty much. (laughs) (laughs) So with that in mind, tonight we'll be continuing our look at vehicles with the third of the three Cs with a look at chases and races. (laughs) Okay, Uli. So so we've, we've looked at all manner of vehicles in these past episodes, and our regular listeners should have a clear idea of what we're on about. But... What if this is the first time hearing about the Forge and it's your first time listening? Look, that's a really good point, Chris. And and now, as we've mentioned in all of our episodes about vehicles thus far, we want to ensure that, that both GMs and players alike can use the vehicle rules with ease. And we want them to gain a better understanding of how the rules work and how to use them best in their games. But We also want to obviously highlight any weaknesses the rules may have that we discovered during our research into the rules by offering some suggestions and fixes like we did with Encounter Zones, but we also want to provide information to authors on how to present vehicle encounters when creating products for the Foundry, and how have we done that, Chris? Well, as I mentioned before, Huli, we've spent quite a few hours already digging into the vehicle rules, and we don't want to have to summarize them every time. So, guys, simply put, if you haven't done so already, go back and check out those episodes we mentioned before. Episodes 15, 17, and 20 
before listening to this episode. Right. So we've, uh, we're going to assume that basically you've listened to all of those episodes. And if something isn't making any sense, go back and familiarize yourself with that content. Mm-hmm. All right, Uli. Let's get into this. Where where do you want to start? Chases and races. Where do we where do we where do we even start? Well, look. Um, obviously, the the overall arcing sort of topic is going to be about chases. We we will include some details later on about racing because it can be handled differently. But for a start, let's just look at, at chases. Why do chases exist in RPGs, and why do players just desire them so much in their games? I, I think for me. Um, chases are pretty exciting. There's lots of narrative elements that can be thrown into the mix depending on the scenario. Um, and uh, look, the changing environments that uh, that we see um, uh, as they they move through whatever sort of urban environment or or, um, or forest jungle or even as we mentioned before about um, you know underwater adventures. There's plenty of things that can pop up there. So mm. that's the sort of that's the the reason why it, it's normally the most exciting part of an adventure, and, and it's a classic trope, right? Mm. I mean, look, when you're it doesn't matter whether you're reading a comic or you're you're watching a movie or a television show. Mm. It's like if you if you get the heroes into a large or less than large vehicle mm. or on the back of a beast, mm. okay, mm. and you go galloping off or racing off at ludicrous speeds. <laughs> Um, there's just a, a huge amount of of excitement that comes from the jeopardy that that places those characters in, as well mm. as as well as the overall challenge. Yeah. But also, I think it's important to note that it really provides yet another avenue for certain characters to show off their skills and their capabilities. I mean, the concept of the pilot, right, right. or the 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 driver, mm-hmm. or or quite frankly, the expert rider, the cavalryman, or mm. the dragoon. Okay, yep. is is a very, I mean, it's it's it is a a trope that is present in virtually every setting you can think of, mm. um, you know, whether it's fantasy to all the way all the way running the gamut to space opera. Mm. You've got you've got somebody who's your you know is 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 the ace behind the reins or behind the wheel or behind the stick, mm. and it's a it's a classic trope that a lot of players are really drawn to. Yeah, um, yeah. and. So I love, you know, as a as a GM and a, and a writer of adventures, I love it because it it allows, as as we all GM should, to find a way another yet another way to showcase a particular character, mm. and once every other session or so, give that character a real moment to shine and celebrate the the trope that they're have decided to devote themselves to. Mm. Uh, and it also allowed allows player creativity as well. Oh, yeah. You know, that they might start using skills that, um, you know, they don't otherwise use. I've, I've seen a, a diplomatic character um, start, you know, using those skills to hurl abuse at the pursuers, for want of a better term. And, uh, you know, that, that sort of allows them to go, well, how can I use my skills? Um, because, you know, the, the driver and the, the gunner, they're obvious choices for that sort of a scenario. And they don't necessarily get a lot of love either. Um, so these sort of scenes really highlight that. It's lots of action, really exciting stuff. The other thing that I really like about Chasers is you can use it, as a writer, you can use it to explain what point they are at the story or even what the stakes are 
for what they're chasing or what um, they're protecting. So uh, it, it basically allows them to, to really explain the stakes for what their actions are within the story. So uh, that's an important thing as well. You know, th- this is an interesting, it's interesting to look at it this way. And I think we're going to come back to this in a, in a minute when we talk about what a chase is. Mm. But, you know, any good story mm. has goals and obstacles. Right. And and literally, those things are highlighted in a physical sense through a mm. chase. Mm. Um, you know, I think about you know some of my favorite chases uh, from from you know popular stories you know mm. that are out there. Um, and I'll, I'll go to movies. Um, <laughs> have you ever seen Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom? Have I? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we have we have a MacGuffin. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, in this case, in this case, three MacGuffins. All right. <laughs> um, you know, you know, the Los Ancara stones, you know, um, you know, <laughs> um, and, and they've, they've been stolen. And, you know, obviously at this point, we, that, that's the goal. That's the objective. Mm. And, and the obstacle is, is the fact that, that you now have the bad guys that are trying to get them from you. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that is highlighted through one of the most iconic scenes in the film that blew my mind when I was a kid, you know, <laughs> yeah. seeing this in a theater, um, which yeah. was of course the, the, the mine cart chase. Mm. All right. Mm. Um, just absolutely fantastic. And it's such a great RPG scene. It's so great. You know, <laughs> you've got, you've got difficult terrain that comes into place and people using all different kinds of skills in, in that interaction, mm. um, and combat and even environmental effects, you know, nice. um, yes. to, to an incredibly strong degree. So, you know, speed plays into it, um, mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, dude, it's just, it's a great, great RPG chase. It really mm. is. And who says that you can't uh, do a chase on rails? You know, because <laughs> the 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 minecarts don't really sort of they can't go off where they want them to. They're stuck on this uh, on the rails. So uh, you know, and it's yeah. it is an exciting exciting scene that that uh, I can watch time and time again. But what what does that chase inform the viewer about the story? It mm. it tacitly reinforces both the objective and the challenge. Mm. It you know, it, because of the drama it adds to the scene, it reinforces very subtly to the audience and very meaningfully how important the Shankara stones are. Mm-hmm. And, and not only to those that have just stolen them, um, but mm. also to those that are trying to get them back, the bad guys, yeah. and that you know, and, and that 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 incredible sense of of importance and agency on both parties of a chase mm. reinforces what's important. And honestly, if we think of really good chase scenes from other you know major films or, or other media, you're going to find that pattern repeated. And when you're when you're designing your chases and your adventures, that should the chase should be there to to, to focus on that. Typically, yeah, yeah. Um, another one of my favorite um, is The Matrix. But that's a really good example of, and I'm talking the first one here, as they're running from the agents. So after Trinity manages to um, to get to uh, get back to um, the, the real world um, and the agent um, shoots the phone. So, so um, Neo was there by himself. And so mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. kind of telling the story that he's alone. He's got to do this by himself. 
Um, and uh, that's where he basically turns around and says, right, I'm going to give this a, a golly good show. Um, and I had to edit myself then. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, then he sort of like tries that, realises that the agents are, are insanely powerful. And so even though that he's managed to subdue one of them, when he comes back off the train, he's got to start running again. There's an end goal because we, we know as he contacts Tank that there is a, a, a point that he has to get to. So uh, that's sort of showing that, yeah, he is, I mean, ultimately it's to show that he is the one. Um, yeah, but, um, he, he is the MacGuffin. He is the MacGuffin yeah, in that chase. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, there's, there are countless others. Um, we don't have to go through all of the Star Wars ones, but, um, you know, the asteroid field in uh, The Empire Strikes Back is another really good one. Oh, where, oh my Lord, yeah. Where they are all the MacGuffin. <laughs> <laughs> Predominantly, Vader wants them so that he can use them to draw out Luke. It's showing that Han is really absolutely insane when it comes to piloting, um, but he is the best of the best. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, that's just another example to, to highlight the skills of a character that we've sort of we've known about since for whenever. That was that was that was really the first moment, and where where honestly the audience understood what a pilot that Han was. Yes, it, yes, because 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 in Episode Four, with the budget they had, hmm. he wasn't there for the dogfight. Okay, <laughs> he came he came at the last minute to mop up. And leave, okay? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was the first moment that the audience got to see what a pilot he was. You know, you're not actually yeah. going into an asteroid field. They'd be crazy <laughs> to follow us, wouldn't they? You know, I mean, that that was, you know, so again, that character agency showing, don't tell, show a character's capabilities. Mm. My favorite chase scene with incredible stakes uh, in in recent, maybe the last, well, not it's not recent, actually. It's a couple decades old now, I guess, or <laughs> darn near. I am a leaf on the wind. Oh. Watch how I soar. <laughs> um, with, again, we, we know that Wash is an incredible pilot, you know, in Firefly mm. and then in Serenity, but they show us in, in what is, an, is really an incredible chase scene where they're being chased by a series of Reaver ships you know, mm. in the middle of an active battlefield. And, you know, what what an incredible scene that was. Yes, I totally forgot and, about you know, that. And they, they have the MacGuffin. <laughs> they have the information. They have what they need to get down to broadcast it, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, man. Mm. Lots of cool things. So that's the reason why chases exist in RPGs. Uh, because, yeah, it's the fun, <laughs> ultimately. <laughs> but what is a chase? That's our next question. Um, you know, chases are everywhere in RPGs. As we've said, they're everywhere in movies. Um, you know, foot chases, car chases. And look, one of the, during one of the bits of research that I was doing in relation to chases, especially when it comes to storytelling and film, is that even a social combat is technically a chase. And I never actually thought about that. That's not sort of what we're going to be talking about tonight because we're obviously talking about uh, vehicle combat. But it is technically a chase, and it goes to the definition of what a chase is. The definition is a chase occurs when a character wants or needs something, and there is an obstacle in the way of that need. When you've got those elements in play, that's when a chase happens. Um, yep. So it can be in the courtroom drama where 
you need to get this particular character uh, off a charge of treason or whatever. The need is to to have them off. The obstacle is they've got to go through this trial to be able to get their uh, their associate acquitted. And you know, and another common theme about a chase is often, not mm. always, and I do want to talk about that, but often. You know, it's not just that there's an obstacle, like there is an obstacle, but that obstacle is, what I'm trying to say is that obstacle is usually another party. Okay. Yeah. Mm. Um, you know, in, in the case of what, in, in, to use your example, it's, it's a prosecutor. Okay. Yeah. Um, or in, in, in the sense of a typical chase, you know, it, it's the opposing party, whomever they might be, you know, uh, you know, Reavers, uh, thuggy cultists, <laughs> right? Stormtroopers, uh, you yep. know, Imperial pilots. Mm. Um, but not always. Sometimes the environment itself can present the obstacle and lead to a chase without enemies. And that is still totally okay and still totally within the rules we're going to talk about. To go mm. back to Indiana Jones... Uh, if you dial things back by one movie and you go to uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, there was a fantastic mm-hmm. chase scene that happened at the very beginning of the film with a collapsing temple and Indy trying to get out. Okay, mm-hmm. that was a chase scene without an opponent. The environment was the opponent. Okay, yep. mm-hmm. in Star Wars, you know we see a great opponent-driven chase scene through an asteroid field, and then three scenes later, mm-hmm. we see a short chase to successfully get out of the asteroid field um or i should say out of the belly of a space slug um you know which you you could technically classify that as the opponent but really it's environment okay yeah yeah. well speaking of that where is the best place for a chase to occur Mm. well okay so a chase a chase should challenge the players otherwise it's not really going to provide the emotional and story-driven impetus for doing it in the first place. Mm, that's right. It, it's, its aim is to, prov- as we said, is, is an attempt to prevent them from doing or obtaining something. And that includes simply getting to safety. Mm. But, you know, and, and you can play with that, man, because the best chases, Huli, occur when crap gets in the way. <laughs> like asteroids. Exactly. I mean, that was... That's something that, um, uh, to, to plug the Order 66 podcast, that was something that I learned very early on in the, in the, when I was listening to you guys, that, that was, when it comes to, to doing vehicle combat, it really is let crap get in the way. Because if you're just doing it in an open field, that's pretty boring. Um, and I'm sure there's better ways to do it rather than a chase. But when crap gets in the way, there's stakes at, at, uh, at hand there. You know, you could get killed. You could all blow up. All of your friends could blow up. Um, if, uh, if an asteroid or, uh, you know, if you're in a, uh, if we use Star Trek, for example, when you've got um, Vulcan, which is, you know, imploding, you know, bits and pieces of temples are basically falling on your head. That's another example of, of stakes that you've got to get everybody to safety um, with the environment. Do you know why, from a storytelling standpoint, that is so important? Because when players are big damn heroes, mm. whether it's on the on the game table or on a television show, yep. the audience or the player expects the big damn hero to be the best at what they do. Right. Okay, it's like mm-hmm. it's like wow. There's there's no there's no there's no chance that the stormtrooper's going to catch him, right? There's mm-hmm. there's there's no there's no chance the reaver's going to outrun Wash. Okay, mm-hmm. there's there's mm-hmm. no there's no chance. You, you there's a suspension of disbelief to say otherwise because you believe in big damn heroes. But mm-hmm. strangely enough, 
The same cannot be said when you add another element into the mix, because mm-hmm. that becomes the wild card that quote unquote evens the odds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, mm-hmm. whether that be juking between canyon walls, whether mm-hmm. that be a, a foot chase, not on an open field, but across the rooftops of, mm-hmm. of Adelaide. Okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know, <clears throat> whether, whether that be instead of a, a, a race down a hallway um, after stealing something and, and evading security guards, mm-hmm. it becomes a chase through underground sewers and tunnels, mm. you know, to avoid capture um, mm. and sloshing through the muck and maybe dealing with wildlife and stuff like that. <laughs> I mean, yep. if you feel me? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, th- this is, this is why um, the, the chase is so much fun because there are these additional things that get in the way from an RPG perspective. But yeah, it definitely does level the playing field because if it was just an open field, well, anybody can run through an open field. They just need to run really, really fast. But not everybody can be able to be, you know, jumping between racing cars. Um, Or uh, if we look at episode two, where they had the the speeder chase when they were after Zam Whistle is like jumping out of speeders and landing on another speeder and stuff like that. That's that is your environment that you're talking about. Everybody, I think, I don't think there's anybody out there who doesn't fear heights in some way, shape, or form. To you know, and to know that that's the environment that you're in, people automatically go, "We're a long way up. If we fall out of this, we are going to die." Uh, and I yep. think that that is that's adding in that element to go. Wow, they are heroes because I would never do that myself. Exactly. So that's a that's a bit of a brief overview of what is the best thing for chases, where you should run a chase, what chases actually are, and the purpose of them in a uh, an RPG session or a supplement. But how do you actually run a chase? <laughs> And this is the million-dollar question. Now, chases are most often massive set pieces when you're looking at a film. Uh, they have big-budget effects. They've got explosions and crashes where they're totaling, you know, 50 or more cars. Uh, huge budgets also means a lot of planning. Now, as we've said on this very show before, and Chris has said it on Order 66, and I've said it on Dice Pool, that copious planning at an adventure is not a good idea. No. Instead, you should have some notes about where you'd like to take the story, but don't overplan it. You can do this more easily with certain events that you might want to have happen. So you may have something, uh, for example, uh, you want the PCs to know that they're being followed or watched. The PCs, you know, you make them easily spot their tail. Uh, who is, uh, you know, the one that, who's been monitoring their movements. And they can either choose to engage or if they know their foe is superior, that they may choose to, to flee the scene. In both of those cases, it more than likely leads to an exciting chase scene because the, the, the person who's been monitoring their situation wants to get away. So the PCs then become the one who are the pursuers, where if they flee... The, the guy who's been looking at them still wants to know where they're going and what they're up to. So he then uh, becomes the pursuer and the PCs become the chasees. Absolutely. You know, I, I think of 
you know, the, the last chase I, I, I ran in game, mm. the party had stolen something. Right. right? Mm-hmm. And I, I knew there was a very high chance that they were going to get noticed. Um, if not, if not on their way in, definitely on their way out. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, it was basically any despair result was going to trip an alarm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And they succeeded in the theft, but they, rolled a despair at some point and they tripped an alarm. So now everyone's lured to their presence and they're on their way out. Okay. Mm-hmm. And this was actually, a, this was actually a modern game. Um, mm-hmm. This was a, this was well, sort of, it was urban arcana in Genesis. Mm-hmm. And the notes I had laid out for myself were <laughs> chase. Okay. <laughs> I had, I had a rough stat block for the guards that would be chasing them. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so I knew what their, what their dice pools would be. Mm-hmm. All right. And I had a few raw notes about environmental effects that I would I, I would have in my back pocket to come into play, right. and I just let the rest go organically. Mm. All right. Mm-hmm. Um, now, in that instance, I'm talking about very much running the chase rules like as written, which we'll talk about. Um, which they're they're not specific rules for chases. It's just the you know positioning, force movement, reposition, the the standard yep. vehicle movement rules that we have, which is we'll mm. talk about actually handle chases shockingly well compared to star wars um uh which which had to develop an entirely different set of rules unfortunately for chases Mm, and those are great rules but you don't necessarily need them um you know but but the last time i did that was in that scenario um but the other way i've done it even more recently that i ran a chase scene was in my weird was in a weird west game Mm -hmm. um with with my dusters and dragons setting (laughs) <laughs> um, and we actually handle that through a skill challenge, which is a totally different way of handling it that I, I know we'll talk mm. about. But in in all of these avenues, man, you don't want to overplan. You know, mm. understand if, if there's going to be opposing checks, understand what those dice pools are going to be, or mm. at the very least, that way you can you can have difficulty if the PCs are making an opposed check, right? Right. Um, and understand your basic environmental effects, and just let the scene flow because it's mm. going to get crazy. I yeah. mean. Especially if you're doing it right with environmental effects in a chase, crap's going to go off the rails so fast. Like, <laughs> like you you do you do yourself a disservice, a more almost more so than any other avenue of of encounter planning, than yeah. by seriously over planning a chase. Because mm. those um you know those despairs and uh, and triumphs can change things so <laughs> dramatically, um that uh, that it, it it's crazy. But look the. When it comes to a chase or designing a chase, especially, and this is more so for the people who are designing products for the foundry, is that you don't want to flesh out the chase completely. Like, you know, if in round one, this particular thing happens, and in round two, that particular thing happens. Uh, A chase, if done properly, can go for a very, very long time. In fact, it can almost go for an entire session. So, I mean, they design movies around a chase which goes from point A to point B. Um, And it's just all the stuff that happens in between. Um, uh, You know, as I said, it can go for for, uh, several rounds or multiple segments of several rounds. So, instead of plotting the chase out in its entirety, what you do is you just flesh out certain scenes or obstacles within the chase to give it a little bit more flavor. So, uh, you know, this gives the PCs a bit of an idea or, or of the scope of the chase in that it's not just 
a street that you're running down that it's got a few dumpsters in it. It's that the chase can go on for the length and breadth of an entire city, for example. It's all the little bits and pieces that happen along the way that are the obstacles of the chase. And a good example of this is in uh, Friends Like These, which uh, Keith Kappel um, wrote. And there's a, there's a chase scene in that where it just shows certain parts of the chase. So it, it's just like any adventure that you don't necessarily want to play out exactly how it has to be. It doesn't necessarily need to, uh, to affect the story or whatever else. It's just an exciting part of the story. Now, you may be wanting to highlight something. Maybe you're wanting to highlight that the chase suddenly goes into a shanty town and that something happens in the town as you're running through it. So there's, there's other things that you can put in there to rather than it's just saying chase. Uh, but, I mean, if you're running everything on the fly, just put, yeah, chase. That's what will happen. But as you've said on, on Order 66 in the, in the past, Chris, is you have those little set pieces. What's a really cool thing that might happen during this chase? And put that in there. And that will make your chase a little bit more exciting, a little bit more diverse. You know, one example we didn't really talk mm. about. Um, I'm a huge fan of James Bond. I grew up with yes. James Bond. Yes. Didn't we all? <laughs> and, and so many great chase scenes in Bond films, right? Yeah. Mm. I have to note that this is this is I'll keep this I'll keep this PG for the podcast. <laughs> uh, but in Bond films, there is a, a, an incredibly common, and this is just a narrative flair, a narrative touch. Right. Whether it's James Bond or Howard the Duck or or anything <laughs> with a, even a mildly adult bent to it. Right. The chase always ends up exposing a hapless random pair of NPCs that are en flagrant. Okay. <laughs> You know what I'm talking about, right? I do. You know, it's like it's like they, they crash through a window, right? And and this this couple jumps up out of bed like ah, right? You, you know what I mean? You know, Bond's on skis, you know, flying down, you know, the Alps and burst through the top window of a chalet and out the other window, you know, sailing over the heads of a of a Swiss couple, you know, ah, you know, like. It's it's a fantastic narrative flourish that you can add when you're running this <laughs> that will get a chuckle at the table and puts everyone in the zone like right away. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. It sort of it immerses them in the scene that it's just not about rolling dice and um and seeing who's who's racing ahead. It is this narrative moment. And you can have things like that pop up throughout an adventure, um, or even throughout a campaign. Uh, you know, if uh, to go back to Star Wars, we have the scene where um, uh, the the I think it's I think it's supposed to be Sebulba, but like older in uh, in a speeder that's going past when uh, when uh, Obi Wan and uh, and Anakin are, are chasing after Zan. Yeah, that, uh, and he yells out Yapudu. Um, that things like that. And I mean, the Matrix has got the one with the the lady, the old lady knitting. <laughs> As he's racing through these rooms. Yep. So there's all sorts of things, and you can have them pop up um, to to add a little bit more uh, depth to the world. So uh, yeah, these things pop up. <laughs> mm. So, Huli, I, we've hinted mm. at it until now, but let's get into the mechanics here, man. 
Yeah, because absolutely. we we, we got to talk about this. I, I, there, there's several different ways you can run a chase in this system. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So there are three main ways that you can do it. Um, you can do it as Chris mentioned before. You can do it as a skill challenge uh, using competitive checks. Uh, and that's a really, really simple way, especially if there's no gunfights or anything like that. It's just you might be tailing someone um, and uh, somehow they've managed to get onto you and you just want to know where they're going. You could run it just as a simple skill challenge, um, which, uh, you know, it's just the first to a total number of successes that they win. Uh, this is also a really good way to do races. Yes. Um, I'll talk about races a little bit more in a tick, but but that's a great way to do races, and you can do it with multiple people, um, and you can use uh, you know successes, advantage, threats, triumphs to do uh, to add that narrative flair. Um, the uh, the the next thing that you can do is you can run the chase rules as written, which is and there's no specific chase rules. But you can basically, rules as written, run a chase using Genesis. Uh, you just keep track of positions uh, based on force movement uh, and the reposition maneuver. Yep. And that's really, really simple to do. You can do it on cards. You can do it on anything. And this is where speed and the various pilot maneuvers and actions that control speed mm. really matter and can yeah. often come into play. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, so, uh, that's the, that's the second option. Um, the last one is to, and we will go through this because we know that a lot of people that play Star Wars listen to this podcast as well. Um, and you can run a chase as per the rules for Star Wars. Yeah. However, well, actually I won't, I won't drop that bombshell, but, um, we'll wait until later on once we've gone through that. <laughs> so running a chase in Genesis, um, as I said before, there's no defined chase rule mechanics at all. Star Wars has a defined set of rules. The problem with that is that it's an entire different mechanic and you have to drop certain parts of the standard rules to be able to use uh, a chase in Star Wars. Yeah. You have to suspend disbelief in so far as the way that the turn operates and what the actions and options for some of the participants are going to be. And that can become really frustrating, especially if you're trying to get new players into the game and suddenly they've got this whole idea of what vehicle combat is and then all of a sudden you're changing that so that it's something else. Yeah. It can leave people scratching their heads. <laughs> so I think that firstly before we get into that, before we get into like a step-by-step, we have uh, some points to consider, yeah? Yeah. And it's important to note this. A great deal of the action in a chase is going to be very narrative in nature. Mm. All right? And listen, this is, this is the narrative dice system. We should expect that. But it's going to be heavy here as well. Mm. You know, and, and, and you know, skill checks obviously can and will resolve the outcome of the chase. But the action during the chase is going to be mostly narrative. Mm. Um. And as such, describing that chase is, is up to the GM and the players while describing, I, I think, the environment the chase occurs in and those challenges, mm. Huli, is mm. largely up to the GM. <laughs> <laughs> it is. and uh, But let's not forget, though, that 
the uh, the GM uh, or sorry the players can also make recommendations for changing the scene, whether that be triumphs or flipping a story point that they want some sort of narrative effect to happen within the environment that the GM has presented. And that's always an option. And that's also allowing the players buy-in into the scene. They're, yep. they're really much more invested in it because they've created it. So they're going, that's going to encourage other players to do similar things. And then suddenly by about midway through the chase, everybody is sort of describing what's actually happening and, and people are saying, wouldn't it be cool if we do this? And there'll be planning that's going on. And so you've got this collaborative storytelling. And I, I think that in all of my time playing in, in the narrative dice system, chases, people just get how to tell a collaborative story a lot more than, than anything else because they're all contributing in some way to what's happening around them. And the dice rolls happen really quickly and the, the action is present. So, uh, so, yeah, that's something to consider there. But one of the things that I would recommend to anyone running a chase because it can sometimes get a little bit daunting when you start talking about, especially if you've got a, a vehicle that's traveling at speed five, that suddenly they can move, you know, um, three range bands. Um, and that can sometimes be a little bit daunting within itself because you're then going to need to track where, whereabouts everyone and you're going to run out of table space if you're using cards or whatever else, um, that you consider using the encounter zone rules that we talked about uh, in one of the previous vehicle episodes. Yes. So, um, you know, you can just use those um, hexes to work out where things are in relative to other people, especially if you're doing a scene where you've got people wanting to jump between vehicles, which is always a classic trope as well. Um, or, um, you know, they want to zoom ahead and run past them and try to block them off and things like that. You've got an idea of the space that you're in. So highly recommend using that. Um, and just to summarize that, for those who, who want the very, very brief version you just have to remember that each single encounter zone equals the distance a character. That's a character, not a vehicle. A character can move in a single maneuver. Each range band above short equals two encounter zones. And that works really well with the rest of the rules um, for that it takes one maneuver to move from short to medium, two maneuvers to move from medium to long. That yeah. works in all with that. Um, and the other thing is that vehicles move two encounter zones per point of forced movement. That's another thing to remember. So that's the summary, and that took us about an hour to explain. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but that's the summary of that. Yeah. All right, so let's get into the step-by-step process. Um, and we'll mention Star Wars a fair bit, so if you're not familiar with it, we will try to explain it as best as we can. Yeah. Um, and then we'll, uh, we'll go through how we think those rules can be modified to make things easier. All right, so what's our first step, Chris? Distance. Distance, distance, distance. It kind of makes sense when you're talking about a chase, especially a race, yeah. but you've got to determine distance. That is step mm. one. When the chase starts, calculate how far away the vehicles are from each other. Mm. Um, you know, Now, there is no rule for a set distance, but 
our personal suggestion just from play mm-hmm. is to start the chase at short to medium range if the person being chased is unaware. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, if they are aware they're being chased, I typically like to start at medium to long range. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, now, because I'm very familiar with them, the, the Star Wars rules mention specifically um, choosing character or vehicle scale for the chase, uh, which, as we've talked about, is unnecessary in Genesis, um, unless you are in the, 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 the deep, deep, <laughs> deepness of space or something where scales change drastically. But normally that, that doesn't really matter in Genesis. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Now, step two, um, we kind of got to break this up into two parts because we're talking yeah. about chases and races. So firstly, let's talk about a race. So in a race, the next thing that you would do is you would make a competitive check. Now, you can do that for all of the uh, participants in the race, um, but each of the, the operators of the vehicle makes a control skill check. Um, now, obviously, the skill is going to depend on what's used to operate that particular vehicle, um, or if you're doing a foot race, um, you would use athletics, for example, um, or depending on the scenario, it might be a cross-country type uh, type race, in which case you might be using coordination, uh, you might be using uh, resilience as some options there as well. Um, now, for the difficulty, it's simple. It's the, well, it's not simple because that's a difficulty. Um, <laughs> the difficulty is the silhouette of the vehicle in difficulty dice. Genesis changed this, in my opinion, for the better. There was too much confusion when it came to the formula that Star Wars had. Um, You know, when they entered um, terrain in in a standard combat. Um, For chases, it had a different set of difficulty, which was based on the terrain. Um, And that just, it goes actually contradictory to the way that um, things work normally. So keep it simple. Um, Just use the Genesis rules that we've said numerous times. Um, So the difficulty, the base difficulty is silhouette of the vehicle in difficulty dice. The modifications to that dice pool is going to be the vehicle speed. uh, And that's where upgrades come in. And that's found on uh, page 221. Uh, in table 3.2-14. And then, of course, terrain, which is purely represented by setback dice. Yes. Um, and that's on table uh, table 3.2-15 on page 227. So, uh, so, yeah, so that's when you're doing a race. But what about a normal chase, Chris? Well, a normal chase, I mean, is, is uh, honestly, it's a little easier. Um, you know, vehicles... Mm. Vehicles move um, using normal vehicle rules in Genesis, including forced movement. And Mm. very important, as we talked about in our prior vehicle episodes, allow for the reposition maneuver. Mm. Okay, Mm. very, very important when you have forced movement um, and you want to get that extra oomph. All right. Mm. Mm. Um, That's the simplicity. You don't need a separate system. You really don't. Okay. You could just use the standard rules. Mm. Uh, Another suggestion, though. Mm-hmm. Is to and I love this. You're you're more familiar with this with me, but I've I've yeah. I've I've not run it, but I've I've played it. And you, mm-hmm. I think you may have actually done this for me. Um, mm. Was using was using the pack of playing cards. Yeah, 
Yeah, exactly. And what it is is that um, the playing cards you uh, you designate a suit as a particular environment. Okay. Ah, that, yeah, that, um, that was it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, and then you might have, or well, obviously, you've got the scale of of one or from from an ace all the way through. And then what you can be doing is you can be using, well, that's how difficult that particular environment is if there is a difficulty to it. Um, so things can play out that way. Another one that I've seen that I've, I use um, or have used when I was playing Pathfinder a lot um, is chase cards. Uh, they have several packs. I don't know whether they've got a third one, but uh, I know there's definitely two uh, that they have specific environments in them. There's an urban one. There's a dungeon one. There's uh, there's one for a village, uh, and uh, and things like that that you can just randomly lay them out onto the table, and say this is where the chase is. And because of the way that uh, movement uh, operates in the the forced rule, the forced movement rules, you can just say right, well, on this uh, in this range band, this is what you can see ahead of you. Um, and uh, especially if you're in, in a city where you don't know what is around the next corner, um, you can be using things like some sort of foresight or something like that to know what's ahead of you. And so you can start to plan for that. Um, and uh, that's, that's another really cool way of doing it. Another way is to basically design your own with totally random factors in them, specifically to your scene. Um, there's plenty of, of random tables out there which do that same sort of thing that, um, you know, you can, I think in one of the, the, uh, the RCR, I think it was, um, for, uh, for D20 Star Wars, uh, there was a supplement for Tatooine and it had rules for running a pod race. And, uh, I've used that numerous times to basically design a track. And then you just start adding your, your narrative flavor to it. Uh, works really well if you've got um, a, a track that you have to do numerous laps on as well. Um, but probably my favorite way to deal with that when you're talking about a random factor, I guess, of, of throwing in things is where you just roll behind the screen or roll secretly uh, just to set back die. Um, if it turns up blank, nothing happens. If it's a threat, you can add a narrative effect to the current area that they're in, or you can add an additional setback die to the next dangerous drive check that they do. And if you roll a failure, well, the dangerous driving check is going to be required. The tools are at your disposal. You don't need anything special. No, um, no, not yeah. at all. And then we've got step three. Now, this um, yeah. uh, this is interesting. So this is where you compare the results. Now, this is straight out of Star Wars um, and mainly applies to your competitive checks with a race, okay? Um, So, you compare the total successes as per normal for a competitive check. If the pursuer wins, they can close the distance to a target by one range band. Uh, If the chased wins, they open the distance between them and the pursuer by one range band. Um, so that's one way. Now, this is, as I said, straight out of Star Wars. If the winner's speed is greater, you add an additional range band to their movement, either closer or further away, depending on the pilot's intention, equal to the difference in their forced movement value. 
Now, this may seem like the chase will come to an end really, really quickly when you start adding total range bands. But to be doing that sort of stuff, you you really don't want the the chase to go for more than three to four rounds anyway. Th- three rounds is the magic number. Mm. So try to keep them to that because it's it's supposed to be fast and furious, pun intended, <laughs> so, to go into that. Um, so and then to win the chase, the pursuer must get to engage range, or in which case you would flip over to a standard combat. Or the chased moves to beyond extreme range. So in other words, if they get to strategic range. And this is where we should have some sort of warning alarm. Is that the biggest problem with the Star Wars rules is that it changes the existing rules. And I mentioned this before. It changes the existing rules to become a separate system. Which goes against what Genesis, what its core belief is. Is to make it simple so that players can focus on the narrative of the scenario and we've talked about this we talked about it in vehicles when talking about the Mm. differences between Mm. genesis and star wars you know what i mean Mm. that that there is a very clear distinction being made um Mm. which which focuses on not having for lack of a better term two separate rule sets Mm. uh to a large degree where yeah. you know what's good for the goose is what's good for the good for the gander. It's fewer yeah. things for a, a player to have to keep track of and remember. Absolutely. And if you if you want to do that whole, especially if you're not necessarily um, doing it as uh, if you if you're doing it like as a competitive check race, you could be using triumphs or advantages to start closing or widening the gap. You just have to make sure, especially if you're writing for the for the foundry, is that you mention in there um, players could use a triumph to um, to further the gap, or despair is going to be used to shorten the gap. Um, the and then you you might suggest um, you know three or or four advantages to the same sort of thing. Um, so you know the other thing to remember is that system strain loss will keep things in check. So don't forget that as well. It's just like magic, I guess, in that regard. That uh, <laughs> you know, strain system strain on the vehicle because most vehicles don't have, especially when we're talking, you know, motorcycles or, or or cars or trucks or anything like that. Their system strain isn't all that high. No, no, it's it's shockingly low, actually. Yeah, and they're not going to be able to repair it on the fly. Uh, you know, and, uh, if they're in a, a Starfighter or something like that. Sure, they might have the equivalent of an astromet droid, but eh, it's um, yeah, it, it's not something that does happen as uh, as easily as you might think. So, the, another question that I've been asked when it comes to this is: Can you track the pursuit beyond extreme range? <laughs> when when do you even need to do that though <laughs> look you, you don't but um if for example uh, you know you uh, that the pcs perhaps uh, have shaken the uh, their pursuer uh, and then failed to make a check to escape the city you can always re-engage a chase and you just start all over again so basically you don't uh, as soon as they get to that, it's it's over. It's not. It's this is not an adversarial system. You're just telling a really good story. So as soon as they've reached that that distance apart, it's over. They've managed to disappear into the shadows. 
um, or uh, they've, uh, they've disappeared into traffic. Nobody knows where they are. Uh, but then it can be a skill challenge to get out of the city if that's what they're doing. Hmm. So, okay, we, we've talked about chases. Now, early on in the episode, or in, in this talk, hmm. we mentioned that we'd have a little bit of a side regarding race. Yeah. Because, yes, you can run races like chases, totally, regardless hmm. of how you choose to do run a chase. Hmm. But things are a little different, can be a little different with a race. Hmm. Um, and I think that's worth talking about because... You know, well, ch- chases can have multiple participants, but with races, it's actually extremely common. Okay, mm-hmm. but you know, at a, at a high degree, though, the chase rules are really designed to track the chased and the pursuer, regardless mm-hmm. of how you're going about it, right? Right. But, but with a, with a race, it's a bit different. There, there's an end goal that is the finish line. That's mm-hmm. the goal of the of the of the chase in a race, mm-hmm. and. Honestly, you 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 work out how long the race is, whether that be mm. in rounds or in distance. Mm. Um, you know, distance can really help if you want to use laps. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know about your players, Huli, but mine love to overtake their competitors. <laughs> um, that is always a a moment of cheering, sneering, and jeering at the table. Um, yep. <laughs> Uh, so you know, handling it in distance is it can easily be done. I love because this is abstract and because this is narrative. You mm. can run a race in rounds. I mean, you mm. can absolutely do that. It's like, look, it, it's going to take three rounds narratively. How many successes are you going to pull out of your butt? Mm. I mean, that's you know, <laughs> that, that, that's really what it's going to come down to. Mm. Uh, but if you if you wanted to handle uh, distance tracking, mm-hmm. um, I don't know. There's several interesting ways that can be done if you want to be able to track it. I mean, obviously, there's encounter zones, like you mentioned yep. before, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you can just basically use that to to have the various vehicles move forward using their force movement towards a fixed point. If you want to do the math in your head quickly, you can basically say, well, these vehicles move this distance and, you know, you take away so that you, you're not having to, uh, you know, track this huge monstrous track. But, I mean, that's another way that you can do it as well. You can actually lay out the track and put in specific zones or specific elements to the scene, um, especially if you, you're doing sort of like a um, uh, some sort of uh, post-apocalyptic chase uh, that, uh, you know, if you've got something... What was that movie? Death Race, I think it was. Um, that uh, with Jason <laughs> Stratham, I, I know that it was a remake, but still, um, that uh, that yeah, that certain elements can come into the scene. Death Race Two Thousand was the original from the seventies. <laughs> right. Yes, that's the one. Um, but then Ready Player One had a really good example of things getting in the way um, that uh, that made the the race that little bit more extreme um, and things like that. So uh, so yeah. All right, so we've pretty much explained how to run uh, a chase or a race. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, as, as we mentioned before, skill challenges are, are probably the best one to, to use to do a race, um, especially if you don't want to track sort of where people are and that sort of the, the pack is where things uh, are all happening as far as like the lead pack, and that's what you're focusing on. Um, like in Days of Thunder, for example, um, which is just Top Gun on the ground, um, that that uh, it was all based around looking at what's going on with the lead pack. Sure, um, somebody might get kicked out of the race and they just become debris then, which is always fun. But Right. <laughs> but there are some pro tips when it comes to running a combat 
chase. So what's yeah. your first tip? Well, this is me you're talking to. So focus on the narrative, <laughs> focus on the action. That's yep. what matters more than anything else. But I think just as equally important, if the chase is taking place as a part of a larger encounter with elements that include characters jumping between vehicles or shooting at those same vehicles, <laughs> then darn it, run it as you would combat. I mean, we, we can with Genesis. We can. Yeah. The, the rules are that flexible. Mm. You know, you don't need a separate system to do this. Just run it as you would combat. Mm. Exactly. And look, the, the introduction of force movement changed the very nature of, of vehicle exactly. combat. Exactly. Um, you know, it takes it into account momentum. Um, that... It's the thing that keeps uh, moving the vehicle forward. And the pilot doesn't need to, to dedicate a single maneuver like they do in Star Wars to, to drive. Uh, instead, only a dangerous driving check forces the PC to spend an action. So if you want to, you don't like... And I was having this discussion recently that a chase doesn't always need to be always dangerous driving. There is, uh, Bond is a good example, um, any uh, cop film that, uh, you know, uh, whether it be on TV or, or, or film, that there is always the moment during the chase where the characters can banter. That says to me that there are slow moments in a chase because it might be a straight stretch of road with no traffic or light traffic, or something that doesn't really challenge the players. And as we've said before, don't force players to roll unless there is something at stake. So if you've got a blank area of space where there isn't any problems, don't have your characters having to spend an action to just drive their car. Let them hang outside the window and blat off a few uh, shots with their uh, with their Uzi or whatever it is that they're using. Yep, yep. yep. You know, that's, um, uh, <clears throat> you know, when you talk about dangerous driving, I have actually written a series of talents that I actually and that will be they're going to be in an upcoming product. I'm I'm hmm. I'm close to releasing. Yeah. Um, uh, that I actually call shamelessly uh, "Leaf on the Wind." <laughs> right. Um, and Leaf on the Wind is a ranked because te- I don't, I don't think there's enough driving or chasing or piloting talents, quite frankly. Mm, yep. Um, it's a ranked talent uh, that starts at, starts at, at tier one. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and every rank, when you have to make a dangerous driving check, you can spend two personal strain to reduce the check by one, the difficulty of the check by one per rank of. Mm leaf on the wind mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. but i also have an improved leaf on the wind which is a tier three mm-hmm. that if you reduce a dangerous driving check to simple which is no difficulty you mm-hmm. don't have to make the check right and you know i think in that instance I-, I like the talents they're gonna they're gonna remain in the product but they're they were born from a need where i think GMs often feel the need to enforce dangerous driving when they really don't have to. Mm. Yeah. Yep. And that's kind of what Genesis has done. Um, it's meaning that, yeah, you just, you keep on moving and sure you, um, you can turn corners and whatever else, 
But if it's something like a you need to do a, a 180 um, or you need to make a very sharp turn, sure, if you're traveling at high speed, you're going to need to be making some sort of a dangerous driving check. Yeah. Without sort of going too much into it, Chris, but, um, you know, system strain is something that there, other than the system strain that you take from critical injuries and some, some um, weapons, that's something that isn't utilised a lot. Most of, most of the time that it's, uh, the, uh, a vehicle combat is run, it's always going to be, oh, well, you know, your tyres take a hit, take some system strain. Because there is yeah. very limited, but there's you could allow your characters to be doing more by causing system strain to the vehicle rather than necessarily themselves. But you know, absolutely, that would absolutely. sort of come in playtesting. But other other pro tips for the combat chase, okay? Yeah. In in Star Wars chases, mm-hmm. the main rule to apply is that the pilot cannot spend maneuvers to change their relative position. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Instead, they use the fly or the drive maneuver at the start of the round. Mm-hmm. That doesn't need to apply to Genesis chases. It doesn't mm-hmm. because because spot, spot pilot, pilots can spend their maneuvers to perform reposition maneuver to mm-hmm. move an additional range band range band or two. That's mm-hmm. what force movement brings to the table and why it makes it so much more dynamic. Right. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Um, remember though, as a reminder, we've said this before: spending and as you alluded to, spending two maneuvers in that way. Um, mm-hmm. causes strain to the pilot, but also system strain to the vehicle. That's right. That's okay, right. so don't forget that. Because <laughs> mm. vehicles, can, as we've mentioned in a previous episode, vehicles could only allow one pilot only action and one pilot only maneuver. As soon as you go beyond that with an additional maneuver, um, even if you're not doing an action that you're doing a second maneuver, if you're not doing an action, you don't take two strain personally because you're just doing two pilot-only maneuvers. But the vehicle does. It can only do one maneuver, one action. So something to remember there. The, the system strain is something you're going to have to manage and manage like there is no tomorrow uh, because you will run out of it really quickly because a, a motorbike has got like, what, Four or five or something ludicrously low like that. It's it's nuts. But anyway, <laughs> but um, but yeah. So um, as we mentioned in Genesis, when pilots are forced to make a dangerous driving check, they cannot perform any other actions like shooting. Dangerous driving is an action, and so that action maneuver economy it goes. Because they've got to do that. But that allows other players inside the vehicle, if you've got um, uh, something that's got multiple participants in, that they can start to do things. Um, and uh, probably another pro tip, which um, isn't in the show notes, though, um, is if you're running a race and it's uh, like a, a pod race or um, it's a motorcycle race or a, or a car chase, sorry, car race, Make sure that the other players aren't just sitting there doing nothing. Give them one of the other participants in the race. Just give them stock standard stats. And if they survive, well, that's another recurring character. Even allow, <laughs> even allow your players to, uh, to name them. Um, I've, uh, you know, players, 
It's a, it's a pretty much a, a given rule that players don't tend to want to backstab other players. But no. that feeling is sometimes there just for fun. Just because, you know, tall poppy syndrome, whatever you want to call it. That um, give them the opportunity to do something nasty to another player. They'll take the opportunity. But the other thing is that they don't want that player to be annoyed at them. So they won't necessarily go over that, step over that line. As a GM, you can step over that line because you're the GM. You don't want that adversarial nature, but that's just part of the job um, when it comes to those sorts of situations because the, the bad guys are motivated. But when it comes to it, that the players are going to ease back on the throttle, another pun as intended, um, is to, to not go that next stage where they're going to injure or have the, the main PC killed. Um, yeah. but, but also make sure that you've, you know, we've, we've all seen um, shows about, uh, about races, uh, especially in, you know, Formula One races and, uh, and also, you know, your NASCAR, um, uh, that you do have a pit crew. And sure, they only get used every so often to do, you know, quick repairs, change tires, whatever else. But they're also uh, attached via a, uh, a link, whether it be Comlink or, or, or whatever, that allows them to talk to the other person. So assist can sometimes apply when it comes to those sorts of things as well. So allow for that. Mm-hmm. Any other hot pro tips, Chris? When you are the party who is being chased, mm-hmm. you can decide and remind your players of this mm. as a GM. They can decide to drive dangerously. It doesn't mm. have to be an obstacle you throw at them. How many films have you watched where the pursued, the person being chased, drives through a shopping mall or through <laughs> the, 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 the sidewalk market in right. order to throw their pursuers? Yeah. Okay. Allow that. That's totally cool. And when it happens, if the pursuer wishes to follow, they must also perform a dangerous driving action. Mm. And this is a great way for a stellar player character who Mm. is a great pilot or a great driver to be able to easily make that check, whereas they're counting that their pursuer will not. All right. Mm. It's also mm-hmm. it's also a fantastic creative way to get out of a bind when you find yourself in a vehicle that is much less powerful or much slower than the vehicle chasing you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I have a <clears throat> I, I, I had two two of my OG gaming buddies. Mm. Um one of them he all to this day he still only drives these souped up rice rockets. Okay. <laughs> right. Um, he just, dude, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, you know, he, he street raced in like high school and early college and stuff and all, you know, he just drives these just kitted out ridiculous, you know, uh, Japanese imports, right. That's all he drives. Right. Right. Um, and that, that's, that's Larkin. Well, one of our other buddies, Russell, um, he was, was, he kind of grew up in a, in a, a, as a good old boy Mm -hmm. and all he would drive were these massive pickup trucks. (laughs) Right. (laughs) <laughs> okay, and they would get into these arguments, and I, I this has made me think of this. It's just cracking me up because it, it would be like you know he's like you know the the way the way stupid twenty year olds do is like you know uh, <laughs> you know my, my my car could smoke yours, it, it'll, you know it, it, things like that. He's, and and Russell would just be like, yeah, on the road. <laughs> it's like he's like I'll race you anytime you want. Just 
I get to pick the track. Because <laughs> your little rice rocket's going to bottom out in about six feet after uh, the track I pick. Um, you know, and so th- that's a that's a interesting way to illustrate a tactic that you mm. can use at, when you're when you're being chased. Yeah, so, absolutely. Like um, uh, you know, the the shopping mall that you mentioned. You know, Blues Brothers comes to mind. Yes. You know that, um, uh, yeah, they they go into that just because they can, and and then you can you can throw in those like we talked about before. You can throw in those other elements. Like, how many times uh, has there been chases with a car, and then someone's watching ends up uh, on on the windscreen of the car, you know, yes. and things like that. So uh, so yeah, there's yeah, that's that's a really good good pro tip that uh, allow the players to change the environment if they want to go off-road um, because, yeah, police cruisers don't necessarily go very well um, <laughs> in the urban jungle. Or, sorry, the jungle, not the urban one. But, uh, but yeah, so, yeah, really good option. Okay, so, Huli, I know this <clears throat> is a vehicle show, yeah. and I know we're talking about vehicles, and we've yeah. talked about chases and races and vehicles. Mm-hmm. But what about other chases, man? What What about foot chases? I mean, we're on the topic. Mm. Yeah. Look, this is something that uh, was mentioned uh, by one of our Patreon listeners um, that uh, they really wanted to hear a little bit more about uh, foot chases as well. You can run a foot chase in exactly the same way that you would a um, any normal vehicle chase the only difference is is that the uh the force movement doesn't really exist so you have to spend maneuvers but you're only spending maneuvers if you need to make some sort of an action so in the same sort of scenario that you know if they want to get over a six foot chain wire fence that they're going to have to use athletics or depending on the environment they may be able to use coordination um, or depending on how long the chase has been going for, they can use resilience. Resilience, yep. But otherwise, it follows the, exactly the same process, um, that they spend maneuvers to move, um, they, uh, you know, the chances are that they're going to be taking some strain or, you know, they might decide to spend strain for a little bit knowing that their pursuers probably can't catch up. And we'll, you know, use the matrix again that uh, those uh, some of the cops that were were running after Trinity at the start, um, the agent was being able to catch up, uh, keep up because he was either a really powerful rival or a nemesis. But the cops, on the other hand, they're just minions and they will run out of steam um, (laughs) as uh, as they're spending that strain, because when it comes to minions. They're spending their wounds effectively. Doesn't mean that they're dead at the end. It just means that they've, you know, fallen away because they've uh, tripped over there um, over something on the rooftop, um, and uh, they get less and less as they as they keep going. Uh, and eventually, as per every trope that we've ever seen on film, is that the only ones that are left are the nemesis and the uh, the PC. So the only issue that you have left is the fact that people have no forced movement. So in other words, you know, like characters don't have forced movement as opposed to vehicles. So unless you're playing in like an alien or a superhero campaign or something like that, where PCs or NPCs get to use third maneuvers in a round that can be a move maneuver, or even, for example, with Terranoth, with the cat folk, 
who have fleet of paw that gives them the means to perform a second manoeuvre without suffering strain, uh, your pursuers are probably never going to catch up with their quarry. However, as I mentioned before, strain is where foot chasers will start to hurt because it's a limited resource. Um, you know, taking that second manoeuvre or, or shooting or doing something else is going to cause strain. Um, and it's a resource that there is only a, a, a certain finite amount of. Foot chasers, as we mentioned before, will still have dangerous manoeuvres that require an action. Um, but they will also have plenty of uh, rolling of advantages and triumphs that can be used to give you that extra movement at no cost. So that's an important rule to remember. Two advantages or a triumph can be used to give you a second manoeuvre at no strain cost. And that's where you can make up the distance or allow the PC's target to disappear eventually um, to, to pull away. And that's all you have to do. And there, there's no rules changes required. You just do everything as per what the stock standard rules are. It really is amazing the difference between the two systems of Star Wars versus Genesis. Now, again, you can, of course, run a foot chase as a competitive skill challenge. And, and when Chris and I finish our, our skill challenge supplement, we'll give you that in greater detail. Um, but the, the short version is give the chase a target number. And that target number is going to be dependent on how long you want the chase to be. You know, if you want the PCs to um, and NPCs to to um, have a certain number that they have to achieve, you might want to make it a short chase. So you might say it's only five. Um, you you want a longer chase. You might be making it twenty, um, and that's twenty successes. That's uncancelled successes. Um, so the first one to reach that wins. Um, and they get to determine what the result of that was, whether it be that they lose sight of where the, P where the NPC is, but they manage to find it where the hideout is, or it can be that they manage to crash tackle the NPC at the last minute, and then they get to interrogate them or whatever. The, the aim here, though, would be that each role... So remembering that you're doing these in groups of, of three or until you achieve that result, that each role represents an element of the chase. So for example, the first one might be running through an alley where you get attacked by a dog. Um, you know, the difficulty increases with threats and despairs resulting in um, wounds to the PCs or the NPCs um, as they're attacked by the dog. And each of those scenes can be something completely different. Um, you know, clearing a gap between rooftops, for example. Um, and there's all sorts of other things that can happen. You know, washing lines getting in the way or whatever. You know, what about even running through a dungeon, for example, um, with undiscovered traps? And if you look at uh, the start of Raiders of the Lost Ark, it's another good example with, you know, all the arrows firing out of the, uh, the slits in the wall um, while Indy runs from the collapsing temple. Uh, you know, Chris mentioned before about the chase without an enemy, but the circumstances that you're running away from. 
and that's another reason. That's another another place that a random encounter table could come in really handy. Um, even the chase cards I mentioned with Paizo, or that idea I talked about with using playing cards as well. So, you know, heaps of options there. But are there yeah. other options? Yeah, I, I wanted to. I wanted to to bring this up. Right. Like you know, we've talked about all this. I want to close. I, I couldn't close out this segment without mm. talking about some radical methods to right. handle a chase or a race. Mm-hmm. Okay, there's a few things that I have personally. I, I I have never run it this way, but I have been a party to a player in for mm. various systems, going all the way back to third edition Dungeons and Dragons. Okay, right. mm-hmm. various different games, various different systems. Your party may not like this, so judge your players accordingly. <laughs> but there is absolutely nothing that says you have to resolve a race or a chase using the dice. <laughs> there are some pretty wild methods that I have been a party to and that I've seen that have been done. Yeah. And interestingly, fittingly, they all revolve around manual dexterity. Right. So mm-hmm. are, you familiar with the, are you familiar with a game called Pitch Car? I am not. You need to look up pitch car. It's uh, a. Right. It's are you are you familiar with uh with crokinole or carom? You know where you're you're flicking discs. Oh yeah, across yeah, yeah, a, yeah. A, Okay, I, imagine that same mechanic except a huge modular track that you can build, and you're right. literally flicking discs in a race. Okay. Right. Yep. You know, I I and this is what I it was actually Dave who did this. Uh, you know, for 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 a game he was running. And this is, you know, before the narrative dice system was even a gleam in Jay Little's eye. Uh, we, um, uh, he pulled out because he, he loves pitch car. He pulled out pitch car, and he had actually glued like paper cutouts. It was a Star Wars game. He'd glued paper cutouts of like Tie Fighters on some of them, um, and then our ships on the other. And we literally of these little these little flicking tokens, and we literally played a game of pitch car to resolve the chase. <laughs> Okay. Um, right. That was that was insane fun and just a great memory. Um, mm. Not something I would certainly do often, uh, yep. mostly because it also takes like it took like an hour to resolve the game of pitch car, but mm. we didn't care. We were having a great time. <laughs> Another thing that I can recommend for mm-hmm. something really weird, if it suits your weird bubble and you're weird like me, <laughs> Jenga. Yes. What is the game that uses Jenga? I know that uh, Katrina Ostrand goes on about Dread. It's called Dread. Yeah. Yeah. She's always talking about that. It's much the same concept, whereas Dread uses a Jenga tower to represent tension building, Mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. In a very tactile and real sense of the table, for tense chase scenes, you can do the exact same thing here, where... You could you could have it where opposing parties simply get to have to pull a block and place it, okay? Mm-hmm. Or if you and want to involve the dice, especially with the narrative dice system, maybe the number of successes on your check, or better, or better yet, I love this, uh, not successes, the number of threat, okay, that you generate mm-hmm. results in a, in a number of blocks that you have to pull in place, <laughs> okay. And if you topple the Jenga tower, you're you're crashed, or you're out of the race, or you're out of the chase, or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Now, I read about this next method. I have not seen it in play, mm-hmm. but I'm familiar with the concept. There is a game. I think Cobweb Studios published it. It's called Hell for Leather. Okay, right. And it, it, it its inspiration is is. Do you ever see the you ever see the the Running Man with Arnold Schwarzenegger? Oh yes. <laughs> okay. 
So so it's like it's like it's like not too distant future where criminals are put into this crazy game show where they're hunted to death, right? Right. That's the pre- that's the premise of Hell for Leather, okay? But the resolution mechanic as you go through scenes, you you take a there's a piece of paper that has these special areas printed out on it and you literally tape it to the table. And in the center of the piece of paper, a tower of dice is stacked. Okay? <laughs> Right. A tower of six-sided dice gets continually stacked. And as the heat on the PCs grows, that tower gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Right. Surrounding that tower on the piece of paper, because the tower is in the dead center of the piece of paper, are these target areas. And to resolve, you know, you have to literally take a die, it uses D10s, and you have to like from outside the paper like carom style, you have to flick them onto the paper and they have to not only roll well, but land in a certain area of the target. Okay. And if you knock over the dice tower, horrible things happen. (laughs) Okay. So I was reading about this where a game master was inspired by hell for leather. Mm. And he did this in star Wars. Right. Took the basically, Every time you, it was basically a, a weird skill challenge for a chase or a race. And every time a, somebody made a roll, the number of successes they would generate would determine, and the guy had a huge pile of dice, right? Of, right. of narrative dice. Mm-hmm. The number of successes they generated would, de- would determine the, the shape of the die they would have to add to the tower. <laughs> okay. So if you generated a lot of successes, you would you would add like a boost. You would add a d6. You would just grab a boost die and add it to the tower. Okay. Mm-hmm. If you generated a moderate amount of successes, um, you would grab I think it was a d12. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. And then for really awful or, or barely succeeded, um, mm-hmm. you would you would you would add like a d8. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and the tower got higher and higher and higher. And and again, if the tower falls, you know, you crash, you're out in your placement, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Mm-hmm. I mean, anyway, these are just weird, random things you can do, you know? <laughs> so let, let your let your gaming freak flag fly and yep. get creative if you absolutely want to. There's, you know, despite all the things we've told you, there's nothing saying you have to do this through standard dice mechanics. Yeah, that's true. And if anybody is looking for Hell for Leather, there is actually a PDF version um, on Drive Through RPG that uh, you can take a look at as well. So, uh, oh, it's it's to- it's totally great, man. I've only gotten it on the table <laughs> twice, and right. we had so much fun. Yeah, that looks amazing. <laughs> we'll have to check that out. That's great. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, you should check it out. You should check it out. It's really good. Mm. Awesome. Well, Huli, yep. this has been a great discussion. It has. Um, but, but I think it's time that we head back into one of my favorite segments, mm-hmm. because do we or do we not have an excellent guest waiting in the wings? Oh, yes, we do. Well, I do believe that you may be talking about breaking the mold for a start, and I'm also quite excited to uh, be talking to our guest well, dude, let's break that mold, yeah? Yeah, if you insist. Breaking the mold. 
The Genesis Foundry is an exciting community of fan-created content for Genesis. New settings, new rules options, adventure and campaign modules, and much, a much, a much more. But some creators go above and beyond subverting our expectations and breaking the mold with their work. Our Breaking the Mold segment is dedicated to showcasing an exciting offering available right now on the Genesis Foundry as we separate the pure alloy from the slag and we point you to the best content out there. Now, tonight's guest is the creative mind behind one of the more useful items recently released on the Foundry right now, a new tool set for critical hits that expands the narrative for any game group in any setting. And I had the privilege of also working on this product in terms of, you know, the graphic design and layout as well. And that product is the recently released Genesis Expanded Critical Injury Tables by Community Fixture Roy Altman, aka RPG Narco. Expanded Critical Tables is a very meaty and meaningful resource that takes the traditional critical hit table for personal combat and it expands it into six optional additions that are tailored to the type of weapon or attack that are used to create the hit uh, and the crit uh, from things that crush, puncture, and slash to those that freeze, zap, and burn. <laughs> um, a host of new creative options available to spice up your games with this supplement. And with that, we were really eager to talk about it. So to that end, Roy... Welcome to the show, man. Hmm. Hi, what's up? So excited <laughs> to be here. <laughs> so, Roy, it's really good to have you on. Obviously, our, our listeners are hearing you for the first time, but you know, and we're, we're here to talk about expanded critical tables. But before we do that, I, I, we would love to get to know you better. Maybe you can take some time to tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your gaming career. Uh, so I'm 44 years old. I live in uh, Tel Aviv, Israel with my wife and two sons. And uh, during the day, I'm actually a self-employed VFX artist and animator. Uh, you can see my portfolio on royaltman.net. Cool. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but I've been a gamer pretty much all my life. I've been playing I have dozens of board games and role-playing games and video games, everything really, but uh, not any sports. So. <laughs> yeah, you're in good company there, yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, anyway, I started uh, playing Dungeons & Dragons in 1987 with uh, two red, you know, the red box. The, the original oh, red yeah. Box. yeah. <laughs> and uh, my mind was blown, actually. I didn't get it in the beginning. I couldn't figure it out. But uh, once I started the first session, 10 minutes into it, I said, okay, I can do this for the rest of my life. My first character died 10 minutes into my first session, but it was in the <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. First combat, I just jumped into it. Uh, didn't know what was going to happen. Anyway, after the first session, I told the dungeon master then that I'm going to be the dungeon master from now on. And, uh, I'm also immediately started working on my own uh, Dungeons and Dragons character sheet design, and I've been playing much, uh, pretty much since then, constantly, mostly in a bunch of systems, mostly Rollmaster and Warhammer, and for the last two years almost, uh, we've been playing Genesis. And no matter the system, I was always ending up designing character sheets and player play, and player aids for my group. I recently started a website called RPGNarco.com for uh, all my RPG stuff that I created over the years. There are a lot of Genesis resources there also. It's a great site. You guys should check it out. There's a lot of really cool, fun stuff there. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I love the cards, Roy. The cards Thanks. are just absolutely fantastic. So, um, so yeah, very, very worth it. 
Um, now, also, as we ask all of our guests, what style of game, and you, you've already mentioned uh, some of them that you really got stuck into, but, um, you know, what style of game or game setting or theme do you like to get on the table when you play? Um, in, in other words, what's your favorite thing to play in Genesis? Uh, right now, I would say it's uh, epic high fantasy or epic anything, really. <laughs> stuff with uh, yeah, <laughs> stuff with high production value, you know, explosions and uh, planets collapsing, and uh, really stuff that you need at least three hundred million dollars to make it. <laughs> at least, it was it wasn't always my taste. I used to have much smaller adventures, you know, where the party was uh, really busy with uh, trying to survive all the time. Mm. And uh, Genesis is what opened up, I think, uh, this epic uh, part of me because it's very easy to have a high production value story right from the beginning. Mm. The players are very powerful, uh, especially with the story points where you can just decide, you can change the narrative, you know, on a whim. Mm. And mm. Uh, hey, you got to despair, great, the building explodes. You know? <laughs> <laughs> just think how much number crunching and dice rolling would involve in spontaneously blowing up a building in any other <laughs> system. Really. Oh, God. <laughs> so this game just lends itself into epic cool things happening in almost every die roll, really. Because, uh, you know, anything can happen. Right now we're playing in the salvage world setting. Mm. You can get it on the Thunder also. And it's really, really, we, the whole group just fell in love with it and we're having a blast playing it. And we're also keeping it epic with world-changing uh, consequences and stuff. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. I, Salvage is so great. We obviously had Jared on the show a mm. little while ago to talk about it. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's one of the most exciting things I've seen to come out of the Foundry in a very long time. Yeah, it's really, really evocative yeah. and, uh, you know. Exciting. Yeah, it, that's, what a great, that's a great way to describe it. It's very evocative. Mm. Um, but speaking of being evocative, because, you know, meaning, meaning it drives me to want to do things, <laughs> I want to talk about expanded critical tables. Yes. Um, because because I found it to be very evocative, um, even from a, from a, from a, what is purely a mechanical supplement, uh, which is is really what I think intrigued me the most about it is it's it's very rare that I read a mechanical supplement. I'm like I have to start using this immediately. Mm. Okay, mm -hmm. so um, and I felt that way. So give us the pitch, Roy. I mean, expanded critical tables is currently in the top ten hottest titles on the Foundry. So tell us about it. How would you? describe it to someone who's looking to to purchase it what what makes it different from other supplement and what generally speaking what content can players expect to find in it uh, it just got also the copper sales award yesterday by the way mm. hey congratulations <laughs> that's just less than three weeks after i published it so uh, wow it's like the, the fastest anyway of my products got it and by the way this is all thanks to the genesis player community for sure i would never have dreamed of uh, publishing anything without the great inspiration and encouragement I got from the community, mm. especially the Genesis Facebook group. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's a, it's an amazing group. Yeah. Okay. So what this book is about, I guess the title says it all, right? It's the expanded <laughs> critical tables for Genesis. I try to think up another uh, more evocative or provocative name, uh, like uh, in agonizing pain or <laughs> the Genesis greatest hits. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was a friend of mine's idea. Was a good one, <laughs> and, uh, and Huli had some great ideas. But uh, this project was really more than six months under development, so I just wanted to—I didn't want to delay anymore and just put it out. Yeah. Okay. So 
like I said, the title says it all. This supplement gives you six new critical injury tables, one for each attack type. They are all in all 149 new critical injury descriptions. That includes the narrative description and the mechanical description, obviously. Mm. Wow. And uh, the goal of these tables is to make uh, combat much more dynamic, much more unpredictable, and, uh, well, harder for the player characters. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> It's absolutely some of the the descriptions are just because um, the the involvement that I had was very minor in the big scope of things. The the amount of work that that had obviously gone on before uh, I was ever involved um, just it blew me away. All of the the uh, the content in there. Um, it's uh, yeah, as Chris said, it's the sort of thing that that I've I've printed out now and I'll be using for uh, for my sessions. Um, it, it's great. great. Now, Roy, what can you tell us about, um, you know, obviously I had a bit of involvement with it, but tell us about the development and design of Expanded Critical Tables. Uh, how was it born? Where where did the idea stem from? And, and what did the development process um, look like from, you know, start to finish? Well, our group used to play Rollmaster for well over a decade. So Critical Tables are in our blood. No pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and uh, so we had to stop playing Rollmaster because uh, we just started to have lives all of a sudden. You know, we can't have a three-week character creation process and six-hour combat sessions. <laughs> Rollmaster is just very high maintenance. Yeah, and uh, yeah. So when we, I first read the Genesis Call book and saw the critical table. I just said to myself, well, man, this could be perfect if it was expanded to more tables like Warmaster has. Many, not so many tables. You know, because <laughs> they don't call it Table Master for nothing. <laughs> but uh, a few more would be perfect, you know, exactly what they did. And this was long before I even knew the foundry ever existed. It's just because our group likes them. Mm. So I started working on it more than six months ago, I can tell you that the, the last ones, the last critical descriptions were the hardest to come up with. I used to have moments like in the middle of the night shouting, yes, chop knee, and then run to <laughs> add it to the list. <laughs> yeah, it really took a long time, both to come up with the descriptions and the mechanical effects because uh, there are a lot of already made talents and uh, you uh. Know, all sorts of mechanical effects throughout the books. And I wanted to make it original so yeah, it was fun. It was hard. <laughs> it took a long time, especially the balancing part. Yeah. And with it, with you know, being a role master veteran, yeah, it's like it's a role master plays. Like you know, well, how's your character doing today? M my character is doing okay. <laughs> um. No, that was the first roll out of six tables that <laughs> you need to figure out. Yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You need three rolls to figure that out. That's it. <laughs> um, but, you know, Roy, when you, when you talk about that tough development process, I want to I expand on that because when you're dealing with a supplement like this and when it, when it deals with combat mechanics specifically, which is really when this is going to crop up, that that process of design, but more importantly, testing can be incredibly daunting. I mean, what can you tell us about the playtesting process for this? You said this was six months in development. Yeah. What did that playtesting process look like? Well, I can tell you my players are permanently traumatized. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah, I, there were several times in the middle of a session when the character got hit, and I read out the, one of my new critical descriptions, right. and the, and everybody's jaw just dropped to the table <laughs> because it was too tough. Yeah, obviously. Uh, but and so they really helped me out. Uh, they were a great help in balancing out the results. The, all my players are really Munchkin rule lawyers, mm. and they love to min max. You know, all that's uh, the the horrible things. Uh, Game masters don't like, but they're also great role players. Anyway, <laughs> they, anything, anytime something wasn't uh, balanced, they made sure I knew it. Even if it was against them, actually, there was this combat against this huge hydra, and in the second round, some one of the players rolled a uh, not that high a critical, and the description was so devastating that it pretty much ended the combat right there. And, uh, and they told me about it. They told, wait, that's too powerful. You know, just delete it change it we use the original table for that exactly uh, critical and that exact combat hmm. but so you can see that they were, even if it was against them they were really helpful hmm. and i also consulted with some of the great minds of the genesis community several people really were helpful super helpful they spent a lot of time going through the critical tables one by one and discussing it with me so it's, it's really a great community i told you hmm. it, it is a phenomenal community hmm. yeah really people really Invested time at it. I mean, like hours. <laughs> <laughs> Except for Hollywood, it was amazing. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> it was a lot of fun, though. Like the the uh, just uh, I, I can't even remember how I got involved. I, I think that I was just talking to you online about it, um, and uh, just uh, like the one thing that that uh, I think that my input definitely had an impact on was was to make it make each of the charts their own chart because the writing when you're fitting in that much text the writing i don't know what point form we had but it was really small so uh, to to go and take it and expand it to those additional tables does make it a lot more uh accessible to everyone and uh, so I'm glad that uh, you took that on board and uh, we did a bit of that. And I learned a few more things about tables in, uh, um, in, uh, in InDesign as in well design. in the process. So, uh, so that was a lot of fun. I, I can tell you that the font, I, my, after all, my inspiration was Rollmaster. So the font size in the Rollmaster tables is right. even smaller. <laughs> Just wow. <so> you know. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I think I need a, some sort of magnifying glass or something to be able to be reading the tables then. It's been a long yeah. time since I played Rollmaster. Um, but that's true. Maybe it's something uh, we should uh, emphasize that the, the, the tables in the book is uh, are, are but organized in two separate uh, styles. One mm -hmm. in a single page with mm -hmm. small font and uh, another style is uh, across six pages with much larger font for people yep. in our age group. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, that's the polite way of saying it. Um, <laughs> for for us old men. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly, exactly. Now, Roy, can you give us a, a bit of a glimpse of something exciting or, or unique in the expanded critical tables? Um, you know, maybe to, to whet our appetite uh, for those who, who haven't gone and purchased the product and perhaps also share with us, uh, you know, your favorite thing that is in the supplement. I think my favorite thing is uh, that it doesn't cost any time to implement it, to integrate it into your sessions. Mm. It doesn't change any rules. It doesn't change any math or statistics. You just replace the original 
general critical table mm-hmm. with uh, one of the extension critical tables according to your weapon type, mm-hmm. your attack type. So I think that's my favorite thing, that it doesn't really burden the game in any way, you know, just seamlessly integrate it into any group, doesn't matter the genre or the setting, should be easily integrated. Mm. That's my favorite thing. Mm. Would you like it to read out like specific uh, critical injuries? Dude, sure. yeah, t- I, I, wanted, I wanted to ask you both this, actually. Um, <laughs> I mean, what is, I mean, you got, you got 149 descriptive entries in here. Mm. Yeah. But I want I want to ask both of you because you were both involved in this. Mm. What is your favorite crit in there, and what and let us know what table it's in as well. <laughs> Roy, you go first. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I think my favorite uh, criticals and the ones that were easiest to write are the the higher number ones, the kill ones, <laughs> <laughs> because the, the descriptions are just. I tried to make them as. Uh, let's say, hurtful <laughs> as possible. <laughs> I wanted the group, I wanted the players to say, oh, you know what I mean? Uh, I can give you an example, just a second, and open it up. Uh, I wanted really combat to be, it is memorable, you know, I, I remember all the combats we had in Genesis because it's all very descriptive, you know what I mean? It's all very narrative. It's not just, uh, okay, you roll, you hit for eight uh, hit points or whatever. <laughs> so all the combat in Genesis is already very narrative and very memorable, but I wanted to make it even a bit more here. I'll open up the tables. <laughs> uh, because that's what happened when we played Rollmaster. Mm. Well, I have combats that we played, you know, like 20 years ago that I still remember because of the specific critical, something like that. Mm. Well, for example, uh, from the electricity critical table, which can be applied to all kinds of attack types, you know, from uh, lightning bolts to uh, futuristic weapons uh, to even ma- a magic missile, I think, uh, can be in the electricity critical table. <laughs> yeah, like this one. If you get uh, 131 to 140 in the electricity table, it says target's nervous system acts as a superconductor. Four suffers two wounds and one strain at the start of their turn. Anyone touching the target also suffers one wound. <laughs> you can see it's going to be difficult to heal this person, for example. <laughs> I'll give you another example from another table. I'll, I'll tell you what my favorite is. Yeah. Um, and that's in the slashing table, uh, which is uh, 81 to 85. I love it because of the name, <laughs> which is, that's a lot of blood. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, its target suffers two wounds and must upgrade the difficulty of all checks by one until the end of the encounter. That's brutal. <laughs> God, yeah. what, what did you say? What, what's the what's the critical and what's the critical number? What do you have to roll to get that? Uh, eighty-one to eighty-five. Oh, yeah, that's worth eighty-one to eighty-five. Yeah, okay, absolutely. <laughs> but, okay, okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. The combat is tough. I have to say that this will make for sure combat tougher on the player characters mostly because uh, you know they're the ones who have to carry the the critical results with them. Adversaries usually don't add the combat standing up anyway. Right. So, yeah, it's going to be tougher. But my players loved it. My players loved the challenge. I, well, I have to say, I, I've heard many players players complain about the crit table. Like, like I love the concept. I just, it's not, it's not varied enough, or the crit doesn't necessarily apply to me or doesn't affect me in any meaningful way. Right. And so uh, this is certainly an option for that, I guess. Mm. But I, I, no, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled. I can't wait to start using this right away. <laughs> But it's 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 been it's been very it's been very interesting to read and I can't recommend it enough to all of you. But 
I, I guess really the last thing to talk about, Roy, and the last question for you is what's next for you and the foundry? You know, you you're seeing some some strong early success with this product. What can we expect from RPG Narco on the foundry in the future? So I'm working on several things right now. I have a five year plan. <laughs> but uh, you know you can't really tell how the world will look in two months from now so <laughs> five years is not uh, a good time frame <laughs> but so I can tell you what I'm working on anyway <laughs> uh, I'm doing something with uh, a new thing with uh, Chris Markham mm-hmm. I'm drawing some maps so a new supplement is working on Cool. And I'm also working on a Keyforge style uh, adversary card template. Nice. I already Ooh. have, like, you know, Shadow of the Binstock. And uh, so a Keyforge is just the next logical next step. Mm. And I'm working on a Genesis digital digital uh, character app. And uh, an expand- uh, Huli gave me the idea to do to make an expanded vehicle, critical table supplement. Yes, so that's on the table. <laughs> and uh, I'm working on the Photoshop plugin that uh, will allow complete newbies to draw beautiful RPG maps, like the ones I met for uh, Chris Markham's supplements. Right. Wow. So a lot of my plates, yeah. A lot of my <laughs> I can, I can, I can imagine. <laughs> I usually update RPGNarco.com with uh, every the new stuff I'm working on, so uh, be sure to make, to check it out. A lot of free stuff there. If you come out with a mobile-friendly app for mm-hmm. a Genesis character sheet, a digital character sheet, you will be my hero. Mm-hmm. It's halfway done. It's I, I just need like a couple of months, really. Wow! It's, wow! It's amazing. It's earth shattering. I'm not kidding. Oh man! Well, maybe we can have you on the show again to talk about that because yeah, I mean that's sure. not even a foundry product. That's just amazing. Uh, yeah, um, we'll see. We'll see how it uh, turns out. Yeah. Oh wow, that's wonderful. God, well, Roy, I, I, I want to thank you for taking the time to come on and talk with us about this. It's a phenomenal product. If you guys haven't checked out um, Expanded Critical Tables and getting to bronze just a couple weeks, I, I, I think a lot of you are. Mm. But if you haven't checked out Expanded Critical Tables um, on the Foundry yet, you really need to. Yep. Um, it's something that I, I, I feel will add, I mean, just on my, from my opinion, will add a tremendous amount to your game, mm. regardless of what type of game you're running. And I think that's the real strength here. Mm. This is a, a new mechanical avenue that, as Roy said, takes nothing to bring into your games, no real changes on your part outside of just rolling on a new table, and it will work for any setting. Mm. And I think that's um, that, that's that's something really unusual and very unique. So check it out if you haven't already. And Roy, Thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you, guys. I also want to say that uh, I just love your show. I listen to it all the time. And it's really... I'm almost sorry that you took down from four hours to two hours because <laughs> I just to spend my whole week with you guys. So, <laughs> you know, just in the background. So it's, it's really fun to finally talk with you. Well, we're glad to have you on. Yeah. We, are, we are very glad to have you on. Yeah. And speaking of glad, Huli, mm-hmm. I am glad to potentially get to a few questions. Do you think maybe we should slide our way under that hammer? I think we should. Under the hammer. And welcome to Under the Hammer, the segment where we answer your games and rules questions about the Genesis role-playing game as it impacts both rules content creation and play and we've got some great questions this week of course if you would like to join and get your questions to run to the top of the queue just visit patreon.com forward slash forge genesis and become a tier two supporter today all right chris what's our first question interesting one um it comes from gm ty via dis via our discord 
Um, mm-hmm. He said the following. He says, I'm, I'm working on, and he actually posted a huge thing about this. And mm-hmm. we are uh, great. Again, the, the earlier in the show, you were talking about the great conversation happening over there. Some mm. fantastic conversation um, uh, between him and I and Fat Crab and a few others really going back and forth about it. But he, yep. he basically, he, he's working on a kids on bike style mystery adventure that's set in the world of Android. Um, oh, that's so cool. <laughs> I know, right? He, said, he, said, he says, think cyberpunk Stranger Things. Right. <laughs> His question is, how would you go about creating or converting archetypes, or for that matter, careers, for kids and teens of various economic classes in the Android setting? I'm a bit stumped on this. Mm. Interesting. I, I have some thoughts. I, I <laughs> do sure too. I, too. <laughs> I, I gave him a lot of info, but I mean, at least my opinion. Um, sure. Hotly debated. Mm. Um, so I what's, mean, what's your thoughts? Well, look, it's first of all, I mean, I, like, this is a massively broad question, Huli. We could do an entire show about creating yep. such archetypes and careers, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I, I want to try and be as concise as I can, you know, here and under the hammer. But I do think there's a few nuggets of advice that I think we can give when it comes to creating kids or, or preteens or teens as, as archetypes um, in the mm-hmm. setting that he's suggesting. Yep. Um, first of all, I, I, start with your skill list. Ty, it, it's very easy to say, use the Android skill list for Shadow of the Beanstalk. Mm. But you got to ask yourself if that's actually the case. Um, mm. If you're truly going for a kids on bikes or stranger things, there's a lot of skills, uh, combat skills especially, they're going to be pretty rare for such characters. Mm. Um, to mm. borrow and paraphrase a piece of advice from DM Eric on our last show, Huli. Create a skill list that matches to your campaign that is much more important than matching it to the setting. Mm. Okay. And and the reason I bring that up is because that skill list is is honestly more important than the archetypes or even the careers. Um, mm. Not the least of which is because it informs both archetypes uh, to a degree and careers to a strong degree. All right. Mm. Yeah. Um, my second piece of advice was to, I, you know, I think I think you you create archetypes or careers based off of roles that such kids would have in a, in a typical adventure in this world. Um, if you mm. think about uh, kids on bikes or Stranger Things, the characters fall into these roles or archetypes that, that correspond to those stories that harken back to the '80s movies that we grew up with. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, uh, I mean, uh, the, the Breakfast Club is the perfect example. You have the nerdy kid, you have the mm-hmm. jock. You have the popular mm-hmm. one, you have the delinquent, and you have right. the weirdo. Okay. <laughs> right. Yep. yep. Um, and those all correspond to, and, and those are those are roles you'll find in virtually every teenage or preteen eighties movie. Period. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. And yep. all those classic roles they they correspond to classic roles in an RPG when you really mm-hmm. think about it. Okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. You have to decide, Ty, if you want those represented by archetypes or by careers or by both. If it's something that you're inherently good at, like you're naturally stronger or faster or smarter, then archetype is where you want to start. If it's something that you learn or improve over time, for example, skill ranks, then careers is where you want to go for those role-based distinctions. And in many cases, it's both, which is why players pick species and archetypes that min-max well with certain careers. Right. Um, and I did have one other piece of advice that I, I did want to drop regarding xp for archetype creation but before i do that i mean huli what are your thoughts on what i've said and, and your own notions 
Well, look, um, you're 100% right, and we're definitely on the same page there, that's for sure. Um, the the thing that sort of – one of the, the the issues that was raised by somebody else was that uh, the this particular genre that the – uh, the kids are supposed to be better than the adults. Um, that all of the adults, especially if you look at the likes of Goonies, for example, that all the all the kids are yeah, sure they're kids, but their skills are much much better than the the NPCs or the adults in the story. And so, uh, some uh, one of the, I think it was Fat Crab basically mentioned that. Uh, by having them uh, with uh, having the kids better, um, that obviously means that uh, you know they're going to have better skill. They're going to have more access to skills. They're going to have more XP. They're going to have uh, better abilities. But I don't know whether I subscribe to that idea at all. I, I don't. <laughs> um, and you know, I'll, I'll go back to uh, your setting, Chris, with familiar. You know, the the genre is that you're all small animals. Does that need, if you've got an archetype that, uh, that you're using or a species, does that need to be able to be transferable directly into um, Android Shadow of the Beanstalk? The answer to that is no. The same process happens if you've got a superhero RPG. You know, the, the, the Genesis core rules say that it should have another 50 XP on top to be able to spend on statistics. So that doesn't really correlate or balance with um, Realms of Terranoth. You know, a Realms of Terranoth character has, um, they've got heroic abilities, but that doesn't necessarily mean that um, they're going to translate over into a Shadow of the Beanstalk setting because those characters don't. All of these little bits and pieces fit into that particular setting they don't necessarily translate into another setting and this is where you say that you've got to from what eric said uh and i'm going to reiterate it um is that you know you create this skill list to match uh your campaign and that's more important than matching to the setting because the campaign could be completely different but still in um, Shadow of the Beanstalk campaign, like uh, what Ty's done for this, is that it, uh, it, the, the characters only need to suit your campaign. They don't need to fit into somebody else's campaign. So yeah. that's my thoughts. So I, I completely agree. Um, as far as some tricks to actually building archetypes for preteens mm-hmm. or children, mm-hmm. I mean, I think I think Ty or any other GM who's doing this needs to consider the ultimate question that I think uh, in our discussion Fat Crab really went into, which mm. is, do you want these characters to be as competent as adults or not? Okay. Mm. Mm. Um, I would argue that those 80s films that we love so much, uh, you, you, you regularly see those children trounce adults, but you also see them constantly get beaten by adults. They're constantly mm. captured. Okay. Yep. They're, they're mm. constantly discovered. They, they get by based on wit and luck, all right? Mm. Which means mm-hmm. creative player choices and, quite frankly, de- uh, story points <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> and archetype abilities that can be driven by story points that, yep. you know, uh, that, that, that 
regular archetypes would have. You know, something like the the you know common abilities to like you know what uh, your your child. So your strength score is obviously you know your strength characteristic is your brawn is not going to be as much as an adult. Okay, that's that's mm. that's likely. Okay, mm. for mm. most young people. However, maybe your archetype has a special ability that we don't. You can drop a story point, and you can substitute your cunning for your brawn characteristic on a skill check. Right? Mm-hmm. Those are the kinds of abilities that normal adult NPCs don't have access to in this setting, and it's what allows a teen or preteen to occasionally trounce them while still maintaining that feel. Um, and consequently, this 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 means that you know, I mean, adult heroes in that setting are going to have those abilities as well. But it's it's one of those things. It's not so much are 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 the kids or preteens in such a set in, in your setting going to be as powerful as NPC adults? The question is, are they going to be as powerful as as PC adults? Okay. Yeah. yeah. And and if you if they are, why are you making them kids or preteens? What's <laughs> what's what's the point there? So with yeah. all that underway, my, my last piece of advice was I think one of the things that's the, the easiest way to represent this for an mm. under powered for lack of a better term character is to reduce starting xp and i'm not yep. just and I'm, I'm talking about the xp that you use to build the archetype from the ground up okay mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we've had several episodes of this you know removing 20 to 30 xp from the standard totals you know does a remarkable job it ensures that the characteristics are going to be a little less than the average adult and mm-hmm. or you're just not going to have as much to start with when it comes to skill ranks mm-hmm. um other great suggestions, I mean, even though you can have like a, a high schooler kid who's a buff dude, who's a star athlete, he's probably not going to have strength, uh, excuse me, a brawn or an agility more than three. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, outside of the occasional genius savant, uh, even the nerdiest kid at the school is probably not going to have an intellect more than three. Okay. <laughs> so, but which, which is still very high. It's well above yeah. average. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so you may want to limit characteristics to three at character creation is another thing I would, I would suggest, mm-hmm. um, or potentially limit the free ranks they get from career skills. That's another option. Uh, you know, instead of getting four free ranks, maybe you'll get, they get three. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe mm-hmm. even two, if you really want to nerf. Yep. Um, the other thing that was, that was recommended. And I think this is a, another interesting idea is if you really want to represent that, these are these are kids who are physically and experientially m- much less powerful than an adult. Their characteristics yeah. are going to be lower. Their skill ranks are going to be lower because they're kids. Their XP is, starting XP is going to be lower because they're kids. They don't have mm-hmm. the life experience yet. But you still want them to be able to give it to give it to adults as good as they get. Mm-hmm. From an archetype creation standpoint, we had a great suggestion that I, I would echo create an archetype with an extra special ability that is just unique to a kid. And Mm. that special ability should be something of the equivalent of, you know, once an encounter or once a session, you can throw some boost dice onto some rolls. Yeah. Okay. That just represents like, like, you know, the, 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 um, youthful vigor or the luck of youth. Right. (laughs) Right. Um, because that that represents you being, you know, generally speaking, much less competent than an adult in a dice pool, but being able to pull a major dice pool out of your behind and make it when you need to, um, yep. because you're the plucky, youthful hero, basically. <laughs> so, yep. I don't know. Those are some general suggestions I've got. I, I hope they, I hope they're somewhat helpful. I mean, one of the things that uh, that I think is by dropping it to by that twenty to thirty XP that 
players are probably going to still have a one in something. Oh, totally. And that can make a big, big difference to even if they've got, you know, if, if some kid, uh, part of their backstory is that they're, they're a martial arts champion, but they're only like 10 years of age, um, that, uh, you know, that they may only have a strength of one. But they also might have two ranks in Brawl, which means that they're going to be still, because of the way that the dice mechanic works, they'll be using two greens upgraded once, which is still pretty good for a kid of 10. You know, they're, they're going to be able to do some damage to to uh, to a minion at the very least. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I think that that's great advice. Yeah. But don't, don't like... Your players will surprise you. And, you know, you go back to Familiar, Huli, you know, my setting mm. on my, my, my setting for Familiar. Yep. When I created those Familiar archetypes, they, all of them have three ones and three twos in their characteristics. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And their starting XP is only 50 or 60. Mm. Okay. So I, I, cut, I cut the XP by about 60 from mm. you know 60 65 70 in some cases actually 70 yeah. actually if you really want to if can you, you consider the fact that you brought down a three and 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 brought down another one mm. um uh you know I, I cut a lot of xp from those archetypes um in terms of the build and uh you know it so the, because these archetypes were intended to be intentionally underpowered that was the that's the fun that's the fun that's the point right yeah and right. dude these players playing that setting mm. they trounce the heck out of things <laughs> it's insane <laughs> right never underestimate player creativity and story points um it's amazing what they can do yeah, yeah. it's amazing what they can it's abs- absolutely amazing because even even with low characteristics and low xp they're like you said they're probably gonna have a one in something Huli, no doubt mm-hmm. they're mm-hmm. probably gonna have a three in something too Mm, okay and you know as well as i do that three dice in a pool is that magical threshold yeah when you get to three dice in a pool you have a very strong chance of succeeding Mm. i mean very strong okay so i mean yeah Mm. very interesting very topical question i think um with uh, with people designing their own archetypes for their settings um, you know, sometimes think outside the box is my advice when it comes to that. So, uh, so yeah, really good. Our next question um, comes in via Facebook from the Genesis RPG community group, which you should all be members of if you're not already. <laughs> and we thought it was a great one. Now it's from Nis. I'm oh, I'm terrible with names. I'll do, but this this is this is a. I mean, this is a. Ooh, uh, Nish Nish Klojgard, I think. Right. Okay. Sorry if that's um, not how it's pronounced. Um, but uh, Nish says, "So familiars, maybe my memory or Google skills are lacking, but I don't seem to recall any rules or talents for for familiars for magic users. Guess it would be an easy rework of the animal companion talent if you want to uh, have it like." 5th edition D&D, but I really want something closer to real folklore familiars, a creature companion that assists with magic. You know, black cats, toads, etc. Sprites, pixies even. I think, uh, I'm thinking something like sharing the stress costs of magic 
with the familiar that would be the simplest thing, or let the familiar take strain damage to give the caster a boost die, or upgrade the dice roll depending on the strain paid, or maybe gain a free advantage for paid strain. More complicated, but maybe you could get to add an effect to your casting using the familiar. I'm just spitballing here. Well, Nish, I'm just spitballing here, but although I wrote a setting on the Foundry called Familiar, that is about, that is about playing a familiar as a PC, mm-hmm. um, there is nothing stopping you from using those rules and that setting to create an NPC familiar, just a starting beginner character. And I think you would find them to be well-costed. And then at that point, it's not like 5th edition D&D at all. It's an actual NPC that follows you around. They have a form of sentience. They can communicate with you. They can cast a spell of their own. Mm-hmm. And then more importantly, they have their own skills and their own dice pools. And they can assist you on checks. Mm-hmm. So, Which is really what you're describing if you really want a creature companion that assists with magic in that way. Yeah. You know, but but what if you don't want that? What if you want to create something out of whole cloth or you want to go a different route? So what do you do? Um, <laughs> look, the, look. I, I mean, obviously you've got a lot more um, experience in, in the magic department. There's, there's no official published rules or talents for familiar animals that provide any difference from the standard animal companion talent. No. And look, I think we've got some suggestions to make this happen. First of all, I'd make a talent, um, but it could be either a rework of Animal Companion, still at Tier 3, or it could be a Tier 4 talent that has Animal Companion as a prerequisite. Mm. Um, you know, there's, there's really several paths that you can take, but if it's, if it's a Tier 4 talent, I would give the familiar slightly better benefits. Uh, than than the the animal companion you get at tier three. Well, yeah, I, I, even even if you get a magical familiar at tier three, I would give it I would give it worse benefits than if the magical companion talent was at tier four. Mm. So, what would those benefits be? How would it work? Well, we've kind of got some some suggestions because obviously we've had this question for a little bit. <laughs> now, the idea of a familiar taking your strain for magic, it's, it's a good one. But honestly, you don't want to be tracking your familiar's strain threshold as well as your own. It's too much extra bookkeeping. And I think we've mentioned that numerous times before. And it's also prone to abuse. Not that you would have that. Not that you can say that about every player. But certainly there are going to be players that, for whatever reason, they make a mistake, you know. But you can easily say once per session, when engaged with your familiar, you may cast a spell without suffering the normal two-strain spellcasting cost. If, if the talent is tier three, you could even make that cost a story point. But I think I'd keep it story point free if it's tier four. Yeah, I agree. Another option would be boost die, uh, as Chris mentioned before. But again, for for the the sake of easiness, um, I'd make it a once per session ability, as as we previously mentioned. Um, as for boost die, though, I wouldn't do this for ignoring strain. You could even add an improved version of the talent that allows the ability once per encounter instead. 
That's a really good idea. And what a powerful tier five talent that would be. Mm. Now, I would caution against adding additional effects to spells, though, because at that point, your familiar is just another implement. <laughs> yeah. Which it's, you don't want your familiar to just be a piece of equipment uh, that, uh, you know, Order of the Stick um, did numerous uh, well, pokes at that sort of thing where, where you basically just, um, oh, that, there's my, uh, what was it, a crow familiar. Yeah, uh, you know, the- <laughs> raven, yes, it's, it's raven, yes, yes, uh, it's, 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 now, of course, Uli, you say that, yeah, they could want to do it that way, and that's actually another thing you could consider. Hmm. You, I wouldn't necessarily, I mean, role play it this way, but you could actually, and another easy way to handle this hmm. without talents would be to create hmm. a brand new implement type of familiar. Hmm. That's a great suggestion, and then you can treat it and cost it. Like any other implement. So at that point, it provides the benefits that implements would, depending on the, the cost of the familiar, how powerful it is, what it does for you. You could even create, I mean, d- different different species could even offer different capabilities. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, I mean, that could be really interesting. And then you could just, and then you, you still have the same rule. You can only use one implement at a time, right? Mm-hmm. Right. It's, mm-hmm. it's just, you know, you got, you got your familiar. I don't know. I yeah. think that's a very interesting idea. That's a really, really cool idea. And you could even sort of go down the path of um, uh, there would be some talents that you could apply that apply to your implement if you wanted to go so that there's an XP cost that it could do extra things. And then you could sort of rework the the animal companion talent so that you could increase its size um, so that you can really be a familiar specialist. Um, your other option is to have them as attachments, but there's there may be an XP cost. I don't necessarily like that idea because it's moving XP away from from the talents as well as skills. Um, but uh, yeah, there's there's a couple of options there that uh, that you can improve things with, and I think that that's that's something that hasn't really been messed with too much is um, the ability to, or abilities and talents that really start to mess with the implements themselves. You know, you want to have someone, uh, there's a, there's a oh, I can't remember what um, system it's in, but you've got someone who uh, specializes in wand use. Wand, like the wand slinger. Yes, that's it. What Dude. systems, is that, is that Pathfinder? I can't remember. Um, anyway. I, well, actually, it was, it was, it was, I, I first saw it, I think, in Eberron. Um, oh, okay. In, in, in D&D 3.5 Eberron. I think it was, I think it was a feat, or a, it may have been a, it may have been an artificer or a rogue uh, class mm. ability. But mm. um, um, if I'm remembering correctly, I could be totally wrong. Eric is probably <laughs> screaming at me through the, through, through the speaker right now. Um, but, right. but yeah, I'd love to see someone do something like a wand slinger, right? Um, mm. Where you can you can get you can do weird things with implements. I mean, mm. what a what a fun what a fun concept that might be. So yeah, yeah. but listen, I I hope these suggestions have been somewhat helpful. There's there's a lot of interesting ones out there, um, mm. you know. But I I do have to echo what Huli said. The only time you want to be bookkeeping your familiar stats is if the familiar is an actual NPC. I mean, yeah. whole cloth, right? Mm. At, at, at which point they should be doing their own stuff, you know? Yeah, yeah. So it's a really good question. I was I was really eager to tackle this one on our podcast because yeah. it was a really it's a really good question, 
And, you know, here's a here's an open call to all creators out there that are listening. Doing a, 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 a short supplement on familiars, mm. I think, is a phenomenal idea. Yeah, I like it. I love your idea about having it as an implement, though. There is so much you can do with that. <laughs> yeah, well, at, that, at that point, you could have an, you could have another guide too. I mean, honestly, an mm. expanded implements guide is a fantastic idea, not just with new implements, um, but you know, much stronger uh, mechanics and rules around around creating them. Um, yeah. You know, we 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 took a we took a high level stab at it in our show, right? Yep, right. You know, but if that, then at that point, not, you could have not only new implements, but you could introduce an entirely new class of implements, which is familiars, and you could mm. toss a dozen familiar animals in there as implement types. Mm. So. You know, but your mileage may vary. I, I, your, your original point about not treating your familiar like an implement is a good one. And, yeah. uh, you know, uh, you know, again, a lot of that's down to the role playing and the narrative of the player, right? And how they choose to mm-hmm. interact with that thing in the game. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, form tends to follow function. And uh, <laughs> uh, if, if you go that route, there will probably be knowing players the tendency to treat it like a piece of equipment. <laughs> Um, but to be fair, don't players just do that with familiars anyway? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So. It is a trope. <laughs> oh, dear. Very oh, good. It's good questions. Good questions. Mm. Well, Huli, mm. I think that does indeed bring us to the end of yet another show. Indeed it does. What a great show. Those questions have got my mind racing. But um, talking about racing, the the, uh, the chases and races was uh, was great so uh, so lots and lots <laughs> of fun there um but uh, look we'll be back with a new episode very soon with a special guest to help us tackle listener requested topics for the furnace <laughs> <laughs> i cannot wait for this episode oh. And the reason for this, Chris, uh, for his unreasonable excitement, (laughs) is that we'll be welcoming back to the show Keith Kappel to talk about adversary power levels in the Expanded Player's Guide, how they work and how you can and should use them as a GM and creator. Oh, yes. (laughs) Oh, and of course, guys, we're still working towards a deep dive into Secrets of the Crucible. We want your questions about the book. So if you have any questions or topics related to Secrets of the Crucible or any mm-hmm. other questions about Genesis or gaming, for that matter, we want you to contact us. Huli, how can they do that? Well, you can email us at forgedenesis at d20radio.com, or you can post it up via one of our many social media platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Reddit. I'm not going to try to roll the R's by searching at Forge Genesis. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and we've, uh, we've, as we mentioned before, we've also been having some great conversations uh, on the D20 Radio Discord server. Um, and, of course, our truly dedicated conversations with our Patreons on our very own podcast Discord server. And we would love to hear from you all. Don't forget, you can also join the even larger discussion in the D20 Radio Facebook group where we nerds congregate to cross-pollinate. And do not forget, please, to give us a like or a follow as well on any of our social media sites. You can also drop us a review on those sites or on your favorite podcatcher, including iTunes and Spotify. You can also visit us on our website at forgegenesis.com. Reviews are very important to us. Very so, uh, important. <laughs> 
I'm not, still not going to roll my R's. And yes, let us know what you think and let others know what you think as well. <laughs> it also helps to, to bring us to the top of the queue um, and it helps other people find us too with the more reviews, which is great. So keep that in mind. Uh, you can do reviews on Facebook as well um, if you're not into Apple Podcasts, but you can also uh, add reviews onto any podcatcher as well. So don't forget that too. Well, that's a wrap for us. Thank you all for listening, and we hope you will join us next time as we continue to explore the Genesis role-playing game. I'm GM Hooli. May your triumphs be many, and your despairs be few. And I'm GM Chris, wishing you peace, love, and the good game. I'm disturbed every time you say that, love. love. <laughs> <Perfectly>. love. <laughs> we need love right now, Hooli. We need love, love in the world. Yeah. Yeah, we we need love, we need peace, and we always need good games. Indeed. Now, thanks again, everyone, for joining us. And remember, the Forge Podcast, helping you hone your gaming edge. The Forge, a Genesis podcast, is a proud member of the T20 Radio Network. For more information about the network, visit www.d20radio.com. The Forge is a fan-generated podcast. All the information provided on the podcast, social media, and related website is not affiliated with Fantasy Flight Games or any of their licensors. The content of this podcast remains the property of the Forge, a Genesis RPG podcast, and is intended for educational and informational purposes only. The Genesis role-playing game, Genesis logo, Genesis Foundry, content, and all material remain the property of Fantasy Flight Games. All products available on the Genesis Foundry website remain the property of their respective companies and individuals. For more information about the Forge Genesis RPG podcast, visit www.forgegenesis.com. Then you know you've also got the 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 chase scene uh, or the the race scene, should I say, that was in and now I can't remember the name of the the movie. Um, it was recently it was done from a book. You're going to remind me uh, shortly. It was done by Steven no, Spielberg. You, you've told me Spielberg recently done from a book. That doesn't narrow things down, bro. <laughs> <laughs> um. Oh. What, what, fantasy, science fiction, modern? No, it was like, science what are we, fiction, what are we and, and basically they were all in this virtual reality type thing. That's what everybody... Oh, Ready Player One. That's it, Ready Player One. Um, See, you should, you should have led with that. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, like, Ready like, It was recent. Uh, uh, Steven Spielberg from a book, uh, Schindler's List. Uh, <laughs> Saving Private Ryan. Uh, yeah. yeah, I don't think either of those had really good chases in them but <laughs> but anyway uh so yeah ready player one had a really good example of things getting in the way